In all Republican governments, the people at large have an indispensable duty to watch and guard their liberties and to crush the very first appearances of encroachments upon it. Massachusetts Chief Justice William Whiting, Berkshire County Court. I'm Matt. I'm Nick. This is the Status Quo, episode 73. Thanks, Nick. Are you with the enemy? There's no in between. guys thank you for joining us today this is the motherfucking status quo i am your host matt freeman we can't be fucking around today because we got a lot of ground to cover today we're talking about something that is a very little known incidence in american history that doesn't get the attention that it should that had a huge uh a huge impact on the way things shook out in this country that with all the other kind of similar incidents that happened around that same time and Let's be honest here. In your high school history class, it seems like the early years of the American Republic, they're just hardly touched on. Now, I don't I don't know about you guys, but I don't remember us going over that period of time any all in my government indoctrination camp. Do you? No, not at all. It was basically just like Pilgrims, American Revolution, Civil War. Like Yeah, World War Two. Yeah, World War Two. And then nothing and then nothing and then nine eleven. Yeah. Well, that happened while I was in school. So Yeah, me too. <laughs> But I figured it's probably in fucking history books by now. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, fuck. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Last night I was in my EMS class, right? So the, the instructor's like, so how many guys are out, out of, you know, fresh out of high school here? A couple people raise their hands. How many have been out for a year or two? A couple more people raise their hands. <laughs> how many people y'all have been out for five years? A couple people raise their hands. Oh, my gosh. How many of you guys have been out for 10 years? A couple more people <laughs> raise their hands. And I'm just kind of sitting there like, and he kind of looks around. He's like, has anybody out, been out for 10 years or more? Raise my fucking hand. <laughs> I'm the only person. You should have just raised your hand for everyone. <laughs> like, I have been out for five years. I have been out for 10 years, just significantly longer. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I didn't think that fast. All right. So anyway, uh, yeah, it's it seems like, I don't know, man. Maybe they don't want you to see how shitty the ruling class was to the people and to the Indians and to slaves and black people after they won independence, you know, because of all the high-minded rhetoric about liberty and natural rights and individual freedom and whatnot. And maybe they also don't want you to see how quickly they nullified most of the radical, really great improvements to the human condition and to liberty after the revolution. Because you really see how transparent that rhetoric was, at least for quite a few of the founders. But for whatever reason, it's really not talked about much in the establishment. You know, we're led to believe that we got every independence and just everybody was happy and everything was great. But not quite. The early republic is full of independence movements, revolts, land grabs, cronyism, and the crushing by the state of those various revolts. Uh, William Appleman Williams, who's a leftist historian, and yeah, he's a leftist, but he's still a great historian. Um, he's got this idea that's called the perpetual present. And basically the idea is that, well, you know, before the revolution, it was all bad. The British were terrible. Uh, people got taxed without the representation and just everything was awful. And then we had the independence war, right? Everything was great. 
Uh, it was such a sacred, important part of our history. We look up to it. We talk about it a lot. It plays so much in the American iconography. I mean, fucking Nike just put out shoes with the Betsy Ross flag, you know, that type yeah. of thing. <laughs> we talk about the founders and patriots, the patriots. We still call them to this day. Um, but then after that, you know, no more revolutions. We can never have another one, <laughs> even though the last one was great. And, you know, we should just forget all that stuff about self-government and natural rights and declaration of yeah, independence like and all we, that. We achieved it already. So, yeah. Yeah. So no more revolutions. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, the, in, that, in that vein, I want to talk about a little known but really important event in early American history, which is Shays' Rebellion. It's really not that well discussed, like I said, but it has a lot to do with the ratification of the Constitution and also the form that the early Federal Republic took. But first, we got to set the stage some. It's really important for us to understand the significance of Shays' Rebellion. And since the American Revolution, of course, is often talked about, but so much goes unsaid, a lot of us are working from a, an incomplete picture of events in the late 18th century. And I'm going to try to get through this stuff as quickly as we can. But because there's so much I got to explain, at least so I know that my listeners have an understanding of what's going on here, even if you spent your early years in the government indoctrination camp, I know that you'll understand what's going on with this this event here. And plus, like, the actual events of Shays' Rebellion, too, really weren't that long. And for the rebellion, rebellion itself, my main source for today is a book called Shays' Rebellion, The Last Battle of the American Revolution, and it's by a historian named uh, Leonard Richards. It's a really good book, and one thing that I really appreciate about him is that he gives, like, an even-handed treatment to the whole, um, the whole situation, because most of the histories of Shays' Rebellion, especially the early ones, were written by establishment historians and even fuck uh, George Minot, who wrote the very first one. He was uh, the governor of Massachusetts, fucking personal secretary. So yeah, that, I, and, and we'll get to that later in the show. But I, I did appreciate Richard's take because he was a lot more even-handed and even almost almost kind of sympathetic towards the rebels, which obviously you know I'm going to be because. Well, lots of reasons. So that was my main source for today. It's a good book. It's only a couple hundred pages, though. It's really short. So, uh, you know, in, in an effort to maybe flesh out some of the events surrounding it, you know, we're going to go uh, talk some big picture stuff and then talk what was happening before that time, too. So first off, something that gets glossed over a lot, there were two major camps in the early revolution, at least in the elite oligarchy, you know, a.k.a. the peoples whose names we know that are written down in the history books and there are pictures of them in schools and Masonic lodges and, and there's, there's their birthdays or national holidays, these types of guys, right? There was a radical, almost kind of quasi-libertarian camp. And then there's also like a conservative camp because not everybody, of course, was in favor of independence. The conservatives wanted, honestly... At first, they wanted to reconcile with England. And you have this dichotomy here where you have people like John Dickinson, who's the penman of the revolution. He wanted to send the Olive Branch petition to England. He wanted to say, well, England, we're really sorry. We shot at you guys and we were dicks to you. But we just want you to know that we're really mad. So if you take us back into your uh, imperial mercantilist fold, we'll be really good and everything will be fine. That was his kind of idea. We just wanted to show you that you're really mad. And it's like... Dude, the fucking the king at this point is like wants to like put you on a fucking gallows. Like, what are you doing, bro? This motherfucker wants to kill you. But also, of course, in this camp, you had George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, James Madison. Basically, these people, they didn't really have a problem with the British aristocracy and the mercantile system. They just wanted to be the ones on top of it. 
And because they weren't in London, they would never be. So uh, once the revolution started, a lot of them kind of changed camps. They became slightly more radical, but still a lot of them stayed conservative. And they really, they kind of co-opted the entire movement in a way, which happens a lot with revolutions. And then, of course, you have the radicals, like the true firebrands. People like Samuel Adams, until later, yeah. as we'll get into. Patrick Henry, Paul Revere, John Adams, Richard Henry Lee, George Wythe, Christopher Gadsden, to name a few. And then the countless number of people whose names that we don't know today that really did believe in these ideals. And this distinction comes into view at a lot of places during the story. But one of the bigger early decisions that has a huge impact on events, even today, and is germane, <laughs> which is a new word I actually just learned today, <laughs> to our conversation today, is the Boys. selection yeah, of George Washington. And uh, by the way, if you're um, uh, you know, intellectually challenged or you're a Marine, that word means relevant. So anyway, the, the uh, selection of George Washington as the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army has a huge impact which on July 5th, 1775, which is a full year before the Declaration of Independence, George Washington was chosen as the commander-in-chief of this Continental Army. And why was that? Because honestly, he wasn't the best choice. He was a mediocre military commander at best. His biggest military campaign, which was an excursion into Canada, ended in basic failure. Uh, and the guy was really not that impressive. You know, he had very little military experience. However... He did have two big things working for him. One, he was an oligarch. So he had lots of connections. He was really well linked in with a lot of the other elites that made, made up the Continental Congress. And number two, he was from Virginia. And at this point in time, the colonies, especially the New England colonies, they needed Virginia in the fight because Virginia had money and Virginia had people, which are two things you need to win a war, obviously. And... Honestly, his, he didn't even really represent the ideals of the revolution that well. I mean, he was a full out-and-out statist, elitist. Uh, he, you know, not, not he, he just, you know, if you're going to have a revolution, you have to have especially fighters, military commanders that have, that have internalized the ideals of the revolution. But you compare that to somebody with like Charles Lee, right? Charles Lee was the other person they were considering at this time. And Charles Lee had uh, military experience that went back over two decades. He was very, you know, he had served time in the British military. He had served time actually, which is, this is something that we'll get into here in a second. But what was really common back then was um, military officers would go and offer their services to other kingdoms and groups in Europe. Like he served uh, some time in the Russian army. He helped them crush the uh, Turkish uh Turkish rebels. They were the rebels, but they they might have been partisans, but there was the Russo-Turkish war that he helped Russia win. So the guy was eminently qualified to be a commander-in-chief, but he was a newcomer to America. He didn't have a lot of friends, especially in high places. But you know what he did? He was, I would call him a libertarian, honestly. He was a liberty-minded individualist, and he very well understood European warfare and its weaknesses. He, uh, he really needs his due because the guy's been largely ignored by historians. And yes, he did get captured at the Battle of Saratoga, but and he was released almost 18 months later. And I've, I actually had a, a couple Twitter, Twitter interactions that somebody thought that he had divulged information about American positions to the British. 
Um, and that's why he was released. But I've never seen anything like that in the historical record. And as, as much as Charles Lee gets shit on, especially by the Washington apologist, I'm sure they'd wave that flag all over the place. But anyway, so I'm going to call him a libertarian. And when the Stamp Act was passed, he wrote a letter saying, quote, May God prosper the Americans in their resolution, revolution, that there may be at least one asylum on the earth for men who prefer their natural rights to the fantastical prerogatives of a foolish, perverted head because it wears a crown. Sounds pretty fucking libertarian to me, man. Yeah, I'd back that. Right. Or uh, regarding the British prime minister who was calling for really harsh measures against the Americas, the Duke of Grafton, quote, if the ax is not applied to his neck, it is laid to the root of our liberties, national honor and inheritance. There is no medium. And uh, another thing, too, he often referred to America as that last asylum for freedom. And he was really disgusted of the by, geez, of the treatment by King George III uh, and their reaction to, you know, Americans fights for independence and fight for representation in parliament. And he called uh, King George III, quote, a reptile. <laughs> See, it's not a new thing, man. Hey. Alex Jones did not, did not start that shit. <laughs> well, did he call him a gay frog? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Said fluoride towards frogs gay. <laughs> but so anyway, so, I mean, you know, obviously, yeah, he he internalized the the beliefs the purported beliefs of the American Revolution, but also uh, he was way ahead of his time in military tactics. I mean, this is really the pivotal moment of the revolution because the Continental Congress totally snubbed Lee for George Washington for political reasons. You know, Washington was also, he was a tall guy, right? He was a very charismatic dude, the Virginia man. I mean, he he looked like a general. Charles Lee was kind of, he wasn't as tall and, and he wasn't as dignified or anything like that, but he was a much better military tactician. Tactician, fuck. So guerrilla warfare at this point is is fairly new, at least to the Europeans. And Lee did study it quite a bit when he was serving in the Russian army um, against Turkey. And he he also saw the effects of guerrilla tactics used by the Turks and the Polish rebels against the Russians. And also I'm going to throw in one last quote just for fun. So the president of King's College in New York City, the Tory Reverend Dr. Miles Cooper, had put out a pamphlet that really had discouraged a lot of people in resisting the, the British tyranny at the time. It was called, quote, Friendly Addresses to All Reasonable Americans. And in it, he said that there was really no point in trying to resist the British because the British regulars, they're very well equipped and they're very well disciplined. And they'd be assisted by large numbers of loyalist Americans as well as their Hessian mercenaries. And he says, quote, how could the undisciplined and untrained Americans even ha- ever dream of opposing the British victors of the French and Indian War? This is the modern day equivalent of they have drones and F-15s and nukes. <laughs> so you fat, out of shape, wannabe soldiers with your puny rifles can't oppose the yeah, mighty the American what's military. What's an AR-15 going to do? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I just I think it's funny that this kind of thinking, like we can see it through history. Yeah. It's just underappreciation of what a committed insurgency in a rifleman culture can do, which still exists today. So Lee, in response to this, he published a strictures to a friendly address to all reasonable Americans in November, 1774, which was not too long after this pamphlet was published. 
He said about the British regulars, quote, their showy and much admired mass formation, their parade ground tactics were of no military importance, and the British only won the French and Indian War after discarding these tactics. The highly tatted victories of Frederick the Great were largely won by the Prussian militia rather than the formally trained soldiers. The Americans had numbers, zeal, and knowledge of the terrain on their side, and did not the parliamentary armies defeat the professionals of Charles I during the English Civil War? So, close quote. <laughs> so, Lee obviously understood the power of irregular warfare much better than even the most vaunted military tacticians of that day. He was largely ahead of his time, and he would be vindicated by history again and again and again, from the deserts of Iraq to the mountains of Afghanistan, to the jungles of Vietnam, all throughout history, not, not just the modern day. Conventional armies to this day still haven't figured out how to deal with a committed, decentralized, dispersed enemy. And this pamphlet was by far his most popular work, but unfortunately, as we know, it did not cause the uh, what we would call today a revolution in military affairs, an RMA, that it should have. And instead, the elites of the Continental Congress, enamored with the European military drill and ceremony and the flashy uniforms and the totalitarian rank structure, they won the argument. And this event was one of many that really determined the course of the American history ever since. And you might be wondering how. I'm going to conduct, connect the dots for you in just a minute, I promise. It's lost mostly today to historians, but this pamphlet really changed people's opinion about the British regulars too. And while the Tory Reverend Cooper had done a lot to increase the fear in the Americans of the British Army, Lee showed them that they shouldn't be so impressed with their supposedly military prowess of the British regulars. And it really helped give the common people the courage to fight back. Uh, Doctors James Alden, who was a colonial-era scholar of our day, he considered to be one of the most influential pieces of propaganda in the early revolutionary era. So the thing about this, right, early on, in 1775, like I said, a lot of the the oligarchs and the people in the Continental Congress they bitched out. They wanted to sue for peace, right? You know, you know, uh, Dickinson is is one major one, and they're basically they made a deal, right? The deal was that we're going to send a petition for peace, which was something they wanted really badly. But then also the other half of that deal that the radicals pushed for, at least a few of them, they said the Continental Congress should assume responsibility for the Continental Army because the radicals, while they might have been libertarian and kind of ideology, they didn't understand like the military aspect of that. And this really, when the Continental Congress assumed responsibility, financial, and command for the Continental Army, that really was a decisive point of the revolution that set America's course for history ever since. Consider this, right? Libertarians today, we're anti-war. At least we should be. But that's largely because wars today, they're fought by state militaries, which are funded by coercion, aka taxation, and sometimes the ranks are filled by conscription, which is temporary slavery, right? We're against both these things. Armies also are funded by central banking inflation, which is stealing the value of the money you already have. And furthermore, uh, war is the health of the state, right? And the worst abuses of state power come during wartime, including curtailing freedom of speech, the right to keep and bear arms, and the right to be secure in your papers and effects. See, Patriot Act. See, anything after 9-11. Uh, see, World War I. See our last episode. So on and so forth. And also, the wars of today, they're usually wars of choice. Aggression, which is decidedly unlibertarian. However, there is a case for war in line with libertarian principles. It must be defensive in nature, and the damage incurred must be limited to the enemy military force only. 
Also, the men that fill the ranks of the military force must be there voluntarily. I mean a true all-volunteer force, not like today. Because today it's volunteer to join, but that is the last voluntary decision you make. You can't volunteer to get up an hour early. They tell you when to get up. You can't volunteer to stay home from work that day. They make you go. You can't volunteer to quit. And also, this this type of libertarian war, it has to be funded voluntarily with no taxes, no central bank, no paper money, nothing like that, which pretty much rules out all state action in one form or another. Now, of course, that said, if the Chinese were landing troops on Laguna Beach, yeah, I'd go grab a rifle and go kick them off this fucking landmass. Or I'd at least look after the dudes doing that, you know, myself. But So the point here is that the Continental Congress, in assuming responsibility for the Continental Army, destroyed any hope of keeping the war libertarian and instead turned the revolution towards statism. The funding and the equipping of the army required very high levels of taxation and inflation as well as controls and totalitarian discipline in the ranks of the Continental Army. And we, I was one of my favorite James Madison quotes. Of all the dangers to the public liberty, war is to be the most dreaded because it comprises the germ of every other. Art, war is the parent of armies. Armies, debts, and taxes are the known tools for putting the many under the domination of the few. And also, uh, the, the, it was really important here, this thing about changing the, co- the character of the Continental Army. And I'm going to read a passage from uh, Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, Volume 4. Quote, Washington's only military campaign in 1775 was internal rather than external. It was directed against the American army as he found it and was designated to extirpate the spirit of liberty pervading this unusually individualistic and democratic army of militiamen. In short, Washington set out to transform a people's army uniquely suited for a libertarian revolution into another orthodox and despotically ruled status force after the familiar European model. His primary aim was to crush the individualistic and democratic spirit of the American forces. So I've talked before about how libertarian-ish the militia system is. You know, I've talked, I've talked about how, how, at least compared to my modern eyes and my military experience, how libertarian-ish it was. And here's where this starts to change. And this is where the Continental Army becomes, becomes something much more like the Army I know. As a matter of fact, the U.S. Army, its founding date is 1775. This is where the U.S. Army traces its roots to, right here. So I've talked before in the militias, right, the, in the state and co- uh, colonial militias, the officers were elected by their own men. And the discipline of these elections stopped officers from forming an elite ruling caste, it's typical of European armies and, of course, today's U.S. Army. We have the distinction between officers and, enli- and enlisted of have to, having to have a college degree. And this closes out. Uh, becoming a military officer to the vast majority of guys that joined the military. Uh, the pay for officers and enlisted was similar. There was really no rank distinction between officers and enlisted. And there was also no coercion and no enforcement of will on the enlisted men by the officers. The militiamen followed orders voluntarily. So what does that mean exactly? Well, that means that officers are only needed to enforce unjust orders on the men because if the war was just nobody needs to be ordered to fight it 
And this is why the this is the only reason we have military officers in the modern militaries to make sure that soldiers follow unethical, immoral, and unjust orders. Because if if they were ethical and moral, you don't have to force somebody to do those things. And here's a good example, right? So the end of the siege of Boston in March 1776, the Continental Army, which was formed from the militia, really hadn't performed very well a lot of times. And part of it's because they had terrible you know, commander-in-chief leadership from Washington. But it's also, I think, because Washington was really thirsty for military glory in like a European sense. He wanted that decisive battle where he closed closed with the enemy and destroyed them, like, you know, ran them off the battlefield using conventional European tactics, which was something the militiamen were very poorly suited for. They were much, much better at hit-and-run attacks and ambushes and things like that. And of course, because Washington was so thirsty for this glory, he gave orders that were really tactically stupid. He had to be he had to have been talked out of assaulting the fortified positions of the British in Boston three separate times, which would have been a slaughter. But after Henry Knox's men dragged the siege cannons and howitzers from Fort Ticonderoga, the men set about placing fortifications on Dorchester Heights, which was to the south of Boston, right? The American army, which had been looked down upon greatly by George Washington, really kicked ass at this task because it made sense to them. Under the cover of bombardment, the Continental Army built two forts overnight, which was completely unheard of at that time. And the moral of the story is, when soldiers, what soldiers are ordered to do matters. Stupid orders that don't make any sense are often carried out poorly and without enthusiasm, while sensible orders where soldiers understand the task and the purpose are often carried out with enthusiasm. I know this from my own military career. Nobody gets excited about doing the stupid, pointless tasks that you are required to do. But when an officer takes time to explain the mission, to explain what's going on and why we are doing what we are doing and how it fits into the greater strategy, when, when officers take time to explain that stuff, you'll get a lot more buy-in from your men. So this is, I think, a really important distinction. And speaking of distinctions, George Washington also created rank and distinction. And he ordered expensive decorations and rank insignia for officers, which, hey, still have that today. And he also created a pay scale and paid officers several times more, which is a tradition that continues to this day. The guy that's sitting in the air conditioning on the fucking radio at the talk, ordering us dickheads what to do out in 120 degree heat while we're getting shot at and dodging IEDs makes more money than every single person in my truck combined. You know, many more, many times more sometimes. And also what this, what this helped to do, right? Because George Washington also ordered men wear uniforms, it stamped out individuality by forcing the uniform standards on the Continental Army. And also, this is at a time when these colonies are broke as fuck, spending money on this military like crazy. And he's also enforcing, you know, unrequired costs on them, which is a pretty fucking stupid idea. And this is a problem that arises when the army is not self-funded. It's funded by taxes. Economics just go out the window. Incentives go out the window. And it's, hey, fuck it. It's not our money. We'll just spend it on whatever the fuck we want. If I want to have cool uniforms, we'll have cool uniforms, which is another thing that you're seeing today. All the service branches, they've been basically treating all the fucking, uh, all of the military uniform designs like some kind of fucking 
fashion show or some shit like that, man, where all these different service branches try to fucking one up each other. And for a while now, Congress has been trying to get all the branches to adopt one single uniform for every branch. But no, the Navy's got its aquaflage and the Army just came out with a new camouflage design a couple of years ago. The Air Force shares the Army's. The Marines have always had the best fucking uniforms. Oh my God, they're so much fucking nicer than ours, dude. They're like so much <clears throat> more distinct. Well, that, yeah, not only do they look sharp when they're cut properly, but also the utility-wise. So, the, like, the woodland camo, which is their winter uniforms, mm-hmm. it's actually thicker. You know, it it's, doesn't mm-hmm. the wind doesn't cut through you so easily. It's of a nicer, nicer material, nicer cut. But here's the thing. The desert camo, the summer uniforms, mm-hmm. it's actually thinner than ours is. <laughs> yeah, and it's much more fucking breathable. That makes sense. That makes too much sense. Right, and they got, com- they got nicer combat shirts and all that shit, man. So, <laughs> anyway... So, and also Washington, he had also had brought along corrective training and corporal punishment. Uh, he completely almost destroyed furloughs, which is leave, right? And also a lot of the girlfriends of the soldiers, they got kicked out of camp, which is another tradition that carries on till to this day. If you have a girlfriend, she's not allowed to stay with you at the barracks. She, and a lot of times she's not even allowed to be in there at all. Not that that ever stopped anybody, but you know, <laughs> anyway, so I'd also like to uh, tell another little vignette right here. Uh, In 1775, George Washington got the addition to his forces of a battalion of sharpshooters, right, which are armed with Kentucky rifles. Now, these Kentucky rifles, they're long-range, single-shot rifle muskets. They were the perfect weapon invented just for guerrilla warfare. Long-range, highly accurate for aim fire. Now, these men, they were frontier hunters, trappers, had lived, you know, they were fiercely individualistic. They were very poorly suited to conventional European rules due to long reload times of the rifles. You could, like the rifle muskets, like the Kentucky rifles, you couldn't just drop a ball down them and ram it down. Like sometimes because of the tight fit between the ball and the bore, these guys had to like hammer the, the ramrod down down the barrel to get it to load properly. And that's what made the rifle so accurate because mm. it stabilized the ball in flight. Uh, and also, the point here is that because of this, they were best employed as snipers in guerrilla hit and run attacks. Washington hated this tactic because he believed it was disorganized and dishonorable and was a, quote, waste of ammunition. You mean to tell me that accurate fire is a waste and doesn't make sense. volley fire, not aiming your rifle at a clump of other soldiers is not a waste. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> it's like he just said that because it sounded good. And even though this is one of the revolutionary army's most effective tactics was the sniping of British officers, he created a rule forbidding this practice. Oftentimes, when they sniped at British formations anyway, or they broke one of George Washington's other arbitrary rules, that sharpshooter would be locked up in the brig, right? And then usually his squad mates would break him out of prison. <laughs> so just fucking love that. <laughs> <laughs> so the bottom line here is that George Washington transformed this army from a zealous, eager, high morale army to an army filled with bored, unmotivated, and even mutinous soldiers. He created a lot of tension between the roles of farmer, husband, father, and soldier, right? These guys, they were not professional soldiers. They were needed at home. It created some pretty huge issues for these men. Many of them were already poor, and a lot of them, their families had to go into debt just to survive. 
And this by itself really set up the problems underlying the Whiskey Rebellion and Shays' Rebellion. Because, of course, George Washington, he was a rich elitist. He didn't really understand the need of his soldiers to be at home, which that because it might mean death or survival for their families. And, of course, because Washington was uh, rich and wealthy, he was born rich, he had no money worries. And supposedly his compassion and the love for his soldiers was just so legendary. He was such a great leader. He was an honorable man, many have said. And, you know, I'm here to tell you right now, this is complete bullshit. Because instead of allowing men to leave during winter quarters when they weren't fighting to tend to their homes, farms, and families, which had been the normal tradition in the militia service, he forced them to stay in camp. Now, of course, some left anyway because things at home were really dire, and George Washington said they, quote, had a dirty mercenary spirit. This is one of those things, you know, it's an icon in American historiography. George Washington, the almost godlike figure. But all you got to do is take one look at his personal papers to see he was nothing but an elitist snob. So that's one thing is the change of character of the revolution from more libertarian to less libertarian and even status because of the Continental Army. And also to understand Shays' rebellion, you have to understand economics because otherwise you're really going to miss the real cause and the implications of the rebellion. And it all starts, like I said, with the American Revolutionary War and the financing the Continental Army because the Continental Congress had no power to tax. So instead, it pursued a method that seemed voluntary, but it really wasn't. They issued bonds and the creation of paper money. Now, paper money is supposed to be fixed to gold or silver or some other type of commodity. But nothing stops a state who issues it from printing as much as they want except the honor system. And as we know, states have no honor whatsoever. So the Continental Congress issued $2 million in paper notes at the start of the war to finance the Continental Army. And by the, by the war's end, many, many more times that number have been issued. And a lot of the states, they made these notes legal tender in a sense, meaning that they must be accepted for payment of debts. And the wealthy people bought bonds, which they were speculating, right? They were buying them cheap in the hopes that they would appreciate in value later. And many merchants cashed in big time on all the military contracts and all the requisitioning done to be to outfit um, the Continental Army. And like I had said earlier, that did a lot to really change the direction in the American Revolution in the United States, which would have become. And it also helped to move it along eventually in a more centralized status direction because one thing that has to happen after the war, the Continental Congress had incurred all these debts, but they had no power to tax, right? and they had no ability to raise money, and they weren't even actually a governmental body. Now, the Articles of Confederation, basically what happened is that instead of the general government keeping all these debts and having no way to pay them back, all the states were under the Articles were supposed to take a share of that debt and tell people, hey, if you live in this state and you have these federal, these continental notes, you can redeem them at the straight treasury and we'll give you money. And therefore, the state has to tax to pay back the bonds. But we'll, we'll see that dynamic here in a second. But there's also one other detail I think is also very important. And it's, you'd have to go, we're not, we're kind of jumping around here, I know. I'm just trying to hit all these major points before I get into the narrative. And that's a fact of the matter is the, the original 13 colonies, they came into being largely through mercantilism, cronyism, and favors granting first. The land itself was mostly split up through the crown giving out massive tracts of land to its favorite cronies and the titled nobles, the English aristocracy, especially early on in the 1600s and the early 1700s. Yeah, 
sure, there were tons of squatters out, out in the back country. And a lot of times the squatters and the landowners had a back and forth battle in a lot of the states. Well, actually it'd be the landowners agents because most of the landowners stayed in England and actually never saw their property claims. And plus the titled landowners, the ones that were over here, a lot of times they usually controlled the colonial governments or had a ton of influence. And oftentimes they got the government to impose fees and taxes and they forced the tenants a lot of times to serve in the militia and do other types of work for them, right? These, this is kind of the old school feudalistic type thing. And as a result of that, tenants can pay a thing called quit rents to avoid these duties, which is something that has a lot of history in English law. And this issue of quit rents, which was basically paying a fee to get out of these things, was a massive point of contention between the rich and the poor classes. The situation was made worse because of the lack of available land. You think, well, hey, a second, Matt. It's a big, wide-open country, right? I mean, this is a land of opportunity, this virgin landscape, right? Eh, not so much. You might think that there's plenty of room to settle on unclaimed, undeveloped land, but that simply was just not the case. Many of these colonies back then, they were started as crown colonies, which basically means they were directly controlled by the English government. And then others were established by wealthy elites uh, from Britain with a, a type of charter from the crown. All of them were under English law, which had very strict restrictions on land ownership. And the reason that was is because land's very limited in Britain. Control of the land, if you own a piece of land over there, that helps you get a leg up in the economy. And to keep the aristocracy closed off, from you know, successful and upwardly mobile citizens, control of land was largely uh, done by the state, and there were tons of restrictions to stop people from doing that because you know regulation closes out the market, just like just like Amazon wants tons of regulations in the market because that means that makes it that much harder for other people to keep up to catch up with them. I mean, and this control of land was largely imported to the Americas and aristocrats, government officials, and other well-connected types were granted massive tracts of land just for being such great guys or corrupt bastards, you know, you, you decide. These oligarchs controlled hundreds of thousands or sometimes millions of acres each, more land than they could develop or even survey sometimes. And unlike homesteading, which is where unused land is brought into productive use in the kind of the John Locke sense, like the mixing your labor with the mixing, fuck me, mixing your labor with the soil kind of thing, these oligarchs, they just got land grants and basically just sat on them. And oftentimes they either refused to sell any of their land or sometimes, and even many times, they were legally forbidden from doing so, which is the British law of entail and primogeniture. Basically, entail means that your estate has to stay when you die or before you die even. You can't chop up that land into parcels and sell it. The estate has to stay together, period. And also, primogeniture means basically that when you die, your land has to, has to be inherited by your firstborn son, your oldest firstborn son, which I guess would be also your firstborn son he's your oldest. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to be descriptive here. I'm just failing miserably. But so anyway, what this did, right, is it kept these large land grants together and closed off for settlers to purchase the land, which number one, drove up the price of land. Number two, it closed off a lot of the useful land to settlers and it forced them onto plantations or into renting land off the fat cats. They leased the land, and in some places, it was really no better than European feudalism with all the duties and obligations and fees and whatnot. 
there was always resentment from the middle-class farmers that these landlords kept up, kept hundreds of thousands of acres of prime farmland off the market. And was that meant that the farmers were often relegated to the crappiest land around. And that you might think, oh, well, they could just move somewhere where this place was not. Well, the problem was is that, you know, we're talking about these motherfuckers don't have hovercrafts and air transport. They got their two, their two modes of transport are a horse and buggy in a wagon or a fucking riverboat. And not all the rivers are navigable, of course. And number two is that, so basically if they want to get their crops to market, they have to live close enough to a transportation network to do so. And therefore... Any land that was not controlled by somebody already probably was not useful for these purposes. This kind of thing was especially bad in New York, New Jersey, and Virginia. Uh, sometimes the farmers rebelled against the aristocrats, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Ethan Allen of Vermont, the Green Mountain Boys, he's one of the better-known rebellion leaders that was successful in actually winning his rebellion of this type. And that's what ended up establishing that state of Vermont. So basically... From the start here, America had an aristocracy, and some people had a leg up from the very beginning, and often the title landowners would use the state to extract wealth from the tenants. They used the force of the state to kick squatters off their land, even if the landowner had never even personally seen his claim. Nobody was around, and the squatters built a cabin and started tilling the land, which is pretty fucked up. So just remember, this type of tension is present throughout all early American history. And also, fun fact, it turns out a lot of the founders had their hands in the land business. Many of them were big-time land speculators, which, of course, is a big motivator for them joining the revolution, was the, that Britain had issued the Proclamation of 1763. That drew a line north to south at about the Appalachian Mountains, forbidding land settlers west of that line. Because they had had constant contact, like fighting, between the Indians and the settlers. And the British had just fought the French and Indian War because of reasons like this. And that cost Britain a lot of money. And also they had to station, station soldiers and forts in the frontier to protect colonists. So the British said, you know what, fuck it. No more of this. We can't afford it. <clears throat> and also, of course, George Washington, he was a big-time land speculator. He, was, he had this almost insatiable hunger for the land, this obsession with it. But strangely enough... He had a burning hatred for people on it. He thought they were dirty, stupid, inbred, backwards, just, just generally a very disagreeable sort of people is typically the quote you see from him. That proclamation I just talked about, that was a big reason that a lot of the landed class supported the revolution. Because think about it. Usually the wealthy and the well-connected, they're conservatives, right? And they side with the state during revolutions because why would they want to shake things up? They already got it good. But not in the American Revolution. That is really one big difference between it and other types of revolutions. <clears throat> and back to that whole settlers and tenants thing, you know, with the tenants rebelling against the landowners, there was really a long history of that in America, like I said. It even had a name. It was called Regulation. This originally started in uh, North Carolina in the 1760s, and it was a bottom-up movement of farmers kicking out corrupt colonial government officials. They took up arms against the colonial government and told them to get the fuck out because you're all a bunch of fucking shady bastards. So this type of thing had happened time and time again. And I'm going to read a quote from the book Shay's Rebellion by Leonard Richards. Quote, 
Thus, throughout the backcountry, regulation had been common for decades. It was not always successful and sometimes resulted in humiliating defeat. But there was a tradition that whenever distant authorities got out of hand or whenever outsiders threatened a bona fide settler's land holdings, the people had an obligation to rise up and restore communal order. This manner of thinking had been strengthened by the American Revolution and explicitly by the Declaration of Independence. Washington, Knox, and Governor Bowdoin of Massachusetts may not have taken these words seriously, but others did. To them, the people's obligation to throw off destructive and tyrannical government was not only clear, but had been further sanctified by the thousands that died and fought in the Revolution. And while we look at things like this as like a kind of anachronism today— save for a small percentage of us libertarians and others like us, people took that shit, shit serious back then, especially in the years following the revolution. Especially, think about you know Some of us regard the revolution today as this seminal moment in history, which was a partial triumph for everybody who believes in individual liberty and self-government. I mean, it's also a disappointment in other regards, but it certainly was a paradigm shift in the right direction. But that fiercely independent spirit that sparked it that lives on today in many of us. I come from a line of Scotch-Irish frontiersmen who settled in the Appalachian Mountains about the time period we're talking about today. These people had deep suspicions about government and tended to resist any incursion by the state well into the 20th century. Still, to this day, there's parts of West Bay and Kentucky that are so remote, even in the digital concentration camp we all live, people there still live largely removed from society. So if we still have some appreciation for the revolution today, you can imagine how much these people felt back then. Guys that fought and froze and marched through hell to drive the British off their land. They certainly knew guys who were killed in action and died of disease too in horrible ways. So you can imagine this meant a lot to them. They looked at documents like the Declaration of Independence differently. They believed that the act of throwing off the chains of a destructive and tyrannical government was not only a right, but a duty, a moral imperative. Because they felt if they allowed themselves to accept life under an evil, corrupt, authoritarian state, they felt that those who died in the revolution, they died in vain. And these are the guys that revolt over taxes, corruption, and unfair representation. Things today that wouldn't even elicit a strongly worded letter out of us moderns. So I do have to wonder, you know, what would they say of us today? How many of these men would simply be disgusted with our lack of action, of our choosing comfort and safety over liberty? Because, as we know, he who gives up a little safety for, for a little liberty will have less of both and deserves neither. I mean, it's not all our fault. You know, the founding generation didn't have to deal with the programming of government indoctr indoctrination camps, you know, for example. So now that we've got the kind of the general background of the way, I want to talk about the situation in Massachusetts in the 1780s. You know, we're almost there, I promise. So let's talk real fast about the structure of government at the time. The Massachusetts Constitution was in place. It had been founded, it had been ratified in 1780. And the U.S. is still only the Articles of Confederation. <clears throat> However, even though the Massachusetts Constitution was a very centralized document, most of the functions of government were still handled at the local level. Uh, each village's eligible voters, they gathered to elect a set number of selectmen, which were town officials. And these guys had several duties. They provided education for children. They helped plan and build roads and bridges. They maintained public order and safety and also did some law enforcement functions, you know, protecting the community from outside threats, this type of thing, so on and so forth. 
Towns also sent representatives to the state legislature in Boston, but they only had considerable representation in the lower house. The upper house, the Senate, was tightly controlled by the wealthy. And even in the lower house, the reps often just didn't get much of a say in state affairs. For one, there was a really great distance and the bad weather on the journey from the backwoods to Boston often stopped the representatives from getting to the state house. Reps from around the Boston area obviously didn't have this problem. So much of the legislation and the state government served only the interest of the wealthy Boston elite, which it did at the expense of everybody else. Which gives us a really key dynamic of Massachusetts at this time, and that's that of the East versus West. So the West was made up of rural backwoods folk, right? Mostly farmers, about 85% small family farms that had small amounts of land under tillage with maybe a handful of animals. These were not big-time commercial operations. The land was too rocky and the soil was way too poor. And besides, there was really not much good transporta transportation and markets. So instead, they strove for self-sufficiency. And also, there were various trade tradesmen and craftsmen in each of the towns, you know, blacksmiths, wheelmakers, coopers who make barrels, this type of thing. The East, however, was dominated by Boston and the coastal communities who were merchants, bankers, financiers, government, uh, government officials, and other types of elites. The East has, has always had a death, death grip on the state government and used it to serve their interests. And after decades of this practice, it basically got turned into a state constitution. The East continued to consolidate its power, passing all kinds of laws that benefited them and the wealthy landowners and creditors at the expense of the debtors, who are mostly poor and a lot of them from the West. And at this time, keep in mind, there's still debtors' presence too. Like, the shit is no joke. So what about the guy then whose name is tied to the rebe rebellion. Well, Daniel Shays was a small family farmer who lived on the outskirts of Pelham in Western Massachusetts with his wife, Abigail. He was a captain in the Revolutionary War, and the difference between him and most of the other guys that were officers, he didn't buy a commission. He wasn't directly commissioned. He actually worked his way up the ranks from private all the way up to captain based off of merit instead of you know connections or cash or whatever. And he was a distinguished soldier. He was well-regarded as a patriot and even had been given a sword by the Marquis de Lafayette, who was the French liaison officer who, who um, helped the uh, Continental Army win the war. It was a really high honor. He served five years in the Continental Army, 1775 to 1780, and he was what was called a winter soldier. Basically, he stuck it out through the worst of the war. And George Washington, even though he had very little regard for these people, he needed his type and built his reputation on them. Shea served at Bunker Hill in Saratoga, and he resigned his commission in 1780 after being wounded. And when he resigned, you got to realize this guy was never actually paid for his service. His family was very deep in debt when he returned home. And that sword I just talked about, he had to sell it to get some cash to pay on his debts. So after the war, many of those small family farms were in really bad shape. Many, if not most of the men who served in the American Revolution, they were the ones that owned these farms. And most of them had been away from home for anywhere from three to six years, including the adult sons of the men who owned the farms. So as a result, like I said, they were in pretty bad financial shape. The Revolutionary War soldiers, they weren't paid in hard money, no gold, no silver. They were usually paid in continental dollars if they got paid at all, or sometimes bonds, which they couldn't exchange for much. And the saying, not worth a continental, was pretty common at the time. So you can see how much these things are valued by people. 
And there's a lot of places, a lot of merchants and whatnot that just straight up wouldn't take them because they were so, so worthless. But also in bad shape too, were many of these new state governments. Most, including Massachusetts, had taken out very heavy loans to supply their armies, including the printing of paper notes in some places and also the sale of bonds. A lot of these bonds were snapped up by speculators and wealthy merchants hoping to make a killing in the uh, spending frenzy that always comes along with these wars. And I think it's really important to illustrate just how crushing this debt was. So not only had Massachusetts assumed its share of the Articles of Confederation government's debt, but also it had its own state debt. And Massachusetts by itself had a debt of one and a half million pounds. That's $331 million in 2020 dollars. And that might not sound like much to our modern ears because we live under such a massive state, but think about this. The economy of Massachusetts is a tiny, tiny fraction as productive as ours is today. And Robert Morris, who was the Bank of North America uh, president at the time, which was America's first central bank, he made sure that those bonds would be redeemed at par value. And par value basically means face value plus all the interest. So as a result, something like 50 to 90% of all of the state budgets were devoted to redeeming bonds and paying off interest. Now, these bonds could easily have depreciated and the speculators got just a small payoff for each bond, but the oligarchs made sure that didn't happen at the expense of everybody else. So basically the, the mechanic here we're talking about is that you have price, you have inflation of paper money during the war. But after the war is over and spending, uh, you know, spending goes off a cliff, you know, it decreases a lot. You usually have depreciation of these notes. So basically what that means is that while the notes were issued at a certain value, basically they could have depreciated them by, instead of saying, okay, we're not going to pay you actually a hundred dollars for this bond because right now this bond is trading on the open market for $50. So we'll give you 50 bucks for it. That's basically how that works. In a nutshell. I mean, there's a little more to it than that, but I, we're, we're already going to run super long. So that gives you just kind of the basics. And also, there was also the operation of central banking in America, inclu including in the 1780s, the Bank of North America, the Bank of Massachusetts, and the Bank of New York, which inflated that money supply, causing price inflation, which further concentrated wealth in the hands of bankers, merchants, and other elites. And also, just like most wars, there was a big-time post-war depression caused by heavy government spending and artificial inflation of certain parts of the economy, like arms manufacturing, iron mining, and textiles, you know, war material. And at the time of Shays Rebellion, there had been a depression for about two years. And yeah, a lot of the Boston merchants were grumbling because their profits weren't as high for this quarter, but the people in the backcountry were really fucking hurting. I mean, they're like in danger of going hungry. So in this post-war period, these fledgling state governments had to levy heavy taxes on their citizens in order to meet their debt obligations and run affairs. Special emphasis was placed, in New England at least, and paying back the bonds at par value, which is with interest. Now, obviously, it was so the state would have a good credit rating and they could make sure they could sell bonds in the future, or so you would think. Uh... However, the truth is, is the fact that speculators and elites have bought up large numbers of these bonds from soldiers and other common people during the war for pennies on the dollar because nobody wanted them. But after the war, they wanted the full value payback of these bonds, and they used the force of the state to tax the people heavily to make sure those bonds were paid back in full, which that's a huge problem for me. If you want to speculate, aka gamble with your money, you know, you want to, you know, you want to spend it in Wall Street or buy commodities or, you know, gold or whatever, hey, that's fine. But buying 
but part of buying a bond is accepting the risk that 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 company or that government that issued it might default. So you got to take that L if you want to gamble. But using the government to ensure that your bond is paid back if you're in danger of losing is pretty fucked up. And at the end of the day, this is a dynamic you need to understand. The speculators bought these bonds from people in dire straits, people on the brink of starvation many times at a tiny fraction of their face value. They took a risk then, and after the war when the depression hit, they might have had take they might have had, had to take a financial haircut when the state would pay out the bond at its depreciated market value, which is what some states like Virginia actually did and were able to retire their entire debt within a couple years. Instead, states like Massachusetts levied taxes many times with the British hat on the people in order to pay back these bonds, which were held by a small number of wealthy elites, many of whom made a generational fortune off these bonds, these same wealthy elites that made up the ruling class in government. And to make matters worse, the poor had paid a much heavier percentage of their income than the rich did in taxes. At that time, 30-40% to 40 of state tax revenue was poll taxes alone. And poll taxes are a flat fee, meaning that it's a much heavier tax percentage-wise on the poor than it is on the rich. And also, it had to be paid in hard money too, which was an additional cost since the poor had to trade something in order to get gold coins. And also, there was uh, excise taxes, right? Uh, there's, And this was an example of the favoritism shown by the state government towards the merchant class. So, for example, there's an excise tax on alcohol a lot of times. So that meant that there was a excise tax on hard apple cider, which was from local orchards, that was twice that there was on New England rum, which was imported by the merchant elite. So the farmers that are selling this liquor at a major economic disadvantage, obviously. So this is the dynamic that had led to July 1786, which is 10 years after the Declaration of Independence was signed, and this is where we were going to pick our story up at. So the people of Western Massachusetts, they'd had enough of their state government and their ridiculous, unfair rules and their bullshit judgments. This is a quote from that Leonard Richards book. Quote, Once again, the legislature had flouted the will of the people. For the past four years, scores of small communities like Pelham and Greenwich had pleaded with the legislature to address their concerns. And once again, the legislature had adjourned without doing so. The community's petitions had been polite, deferential, sometimes even groveling. But the message was clear. The backcountry economy was in bad shape, and the new state government was just making matters worse. Woven into those petitions were dozens of tough questions. How, for example, were farmers to pay debts and taxes with hard money when none was available? And why did honest men have to cope with so many layers in the court system? Was it just so well-connected lawyers and court officials could collect fees at every step of the way? And why was there a state senate? Was it not just an unnecessary waste of the taxpayers' money and did not just provide another bastion of privilege for the Boston elite? And why was the government in Boston anyway? Was it so the mercantile elite could pass oppressive laws while distance and bad weather kept the people's representatives from getting to Boston? Such questions were rarely expressed so boldly, but they had sparked many a complaint about taxes, debts, and the shortage of legal tender in the structure of government. In addition, the legitimacy of the 1780 state constitution had frequently been questioned. So too had the legitimacy of the state's rulers. Was it not the duty of the elected officials to protect the people rather than oppress them? Were most of the current rulers not just as corrupt as King George's ministers? What then had the revolution accomplished? Such thoughts clearly circulated in the West, 
and the town leaders had tried to politely convey the message. Yet each year, the legislature had ignored their complaints and only added to their misery. Close quote. So, if we're to look at the major issues that these Western farmers are facing, it was the feeling of a lack of representation that the government not only did not represent them, but actively enriched others and represented them at their expense. And not only that, they demanded ridiculous things like paying taxes and debts and hard money. Gold and silver, right? Well, the thing is, this was primarily a barter economy, right? People traded goods and services with each other, and that's because there was no hard money anywhere. So much of it had gone out of the country because of the Revolutionary War, and there wasn't really a lot to begin with in the first place. And as people started to talk and complain about these issues, many of these towns had set up meetings to call for a countywide convention with the goal of changing the state constitution. And a lot of these towns began to set up committees committees of correspondence and communicated with each other. And by the end of July 1786, several of these counties in the West had plans for a convention. Uh, but the convention for Hampshire County, which is where Pelham was, that's where Shays is from, was by far the biggest. And also the towns of Bristol County had met and called for a new constitutional convention and abolishment of the state Senate and a stop for the debt suits uh, for nine months. So one thing that's going on right now, right, that courts are prosecuting tons and tons of debtors, which is a huge complaint of these Boston far- or these Massachusetts farmers. And at the same time, these two meetings were being held and these questions were being considered. There is also meetings being held in Berkshire, Berkshire, Hampshire, and Middlesex counties. And if these names sound familiar, they should because this is where the early battles of the American Revolution took place at. This is the birthplace of the Revolution. And uh, the Hampshire County meeting, which had taken place soon at that time, you know, this is July 1786. It was enormous, representing almost 50 towns. And the delegates that sent there, they were often civic leaders in town. They were well off. They weren't just poor farmers. Conventional history tells us that it was like a class revolt of the poor versus the rich, which is some Marxist class theory bullshit. And that's, I'm sure, because most historians are fucking communists and that's how they think. But no, that's not true at all. It was people of all economic classes pissed off about this. And it was the ancient struggle. The dynamic was liberty versus power. And one interesting, excuse me, one interesting note here, Murray Rothbard called it. The book I'm talking about, which was published in 2002 by Leonard Richards, he explained that not only there were poor farmers in Shays' army and the people that uh, you know, revolted against the government, but it was also a plenty of rich farmers too. Like Daniel Shays himself, at least like theoretically, he was in the top 20% of, of uh, land holdings and tax assessments, right? And it wasn't just him. There were plenty of other community leaders and well-off people that had gotten involved with the Shayesite movement. But Murray Rothbard called it almost 30 years ago. Conceived in Liberty, Volume 5, which was just published, but it was actually written in the 1970s. And he actually figured that out before we were able to verify that with tax assessment records, which were found in the late 90s. That's amazing. So this convention, they passed a resolution of sorts. They decided they were going to send to the legislature this resolution that consisted of 21 articles, which had 17 grievances in it. And the complaints were the ones I already listed in that quote. And also, they had the additional demands of this. Lower taxes, especially poll taxes. They wanted to abolish the state senate, change the way representatives are distributed in the lower house. 
They wanted government officials elected annually by the lower house with their salaries voted on year by year. They also wanted the Court of Common Pleas and the General Sessions of the Peace to be abolished, the state legislature to be moved out of Boston, and finally, for the state legislature to be recalled immediately to address their grievances. They objected to the assumption that of uh, by the state of public debt. They objected to the 6% interest paid on the bonds and the redemption of the bonds at par value. Here's the thing. These guys weren't stupid. They knew their hard-earned tax dollars, which are being so viciously squeezed out of them, went to go enrich a small clique of wealthy, well-connected speculators, oligarchs, essentially. They demanded that those bonds be redeemed at current market value, which is something many other states had done successfully. The paper money used by most states had depreciated heavily as government wartime spending stopped, which means that the bonds would adjust in value to reflect the current economic conditions, which was a depressed economy. That's not that crazy. I mean, yeah, there's some big items in there, but it's not like they were calling for some kind of socialist confiscation of property, which is how they would later on be portrayed. All in all, these are some pretty mob reforms, um, almost democratic, maybe small d democrat, or maybe even libertarian when it comes to the issue of the bonds. So these guys, at the end of this convention, they agreed to meet next week and, quote, shut down the local state court, end quote. And you might think, well, why would they shut down the courts? Well, here's the thing. People in Western Massachusetts hated the courts. They were the main mechanism that the state government used to enforce its will on the backcountry, and they were the most visible symbol of state power. The courts charged ridiculously high fees for their quote-unquote services, and they also enforced the tax code on the farmers. And one other function they had that was especially hated, they imprisoned people for both public and private debts. People could be locked up for owing as little as six shillings which is less than 50 bucks today. And also, the courts seized the property of debtors to pay debts. Literally everything besides their clothing could be taken. And these courts were flooded with lawsuits for recovery of taxes and public debt. There were 2,000 cases in Dorchester County alone. There's not a lot of people that live there at this point in time. I don't know what the population was, but it was probably a few thousand at most. So we're talking about a significant proportion of the people that live there. And also, to make matters worse, many of the lawyers working out in the backcountry that argued debt cases in front of the court, they were either government officials themselves or they had connections with the judges and the justices of the peace. Of course, lawyers often help make the law, and the law in Massachusetts was very complex, just like today. Of course, you need a lawyer to navigate the court system, which pissed off the Western Massachusetts population anymore. They felt like they were being extorted into paying these lawyers and paying these fees. Now, you might think from reading regular history that every single person in in Western Massachusetts was pissed off about the things going on about there. And yeah, a lot of them were. And you might think that all of them wanted the rebellion too, and that's not quite true. Not all of the towns were really down with this radical course of action. Springfield, for example, said, well, hey, you know, we have democracy. That's a good enough check on state power, am I right? Just vote harder. (laughs) And of course, the radical said to this, like, look around, you stupid motherfuckers. It ain't working, obviously. We voted every year. And the state government at this time, even though they ignored the problems of the Massachusetts farmers, they didn't ignore these meetings and these conventions that were going on. They denounced them as treasonous, which, of course, the court committees of correspondence were the same things that were done early on in the revolution. And they apparently forgot that Boston 
was where American liberty was born and where American resistance to state power had started. It's just, it's, you know, the, the fucking freedom trail is there. <laughs> you ever been to Boston, Nick? No, I haven't. It's pretty fucking awesome, man. They have the Freedom Trail there, which is like all of these important landmarks in early American history. Yeah. Um, and like you have like the the old Massachusetts State House and a bunch of other things. It's pretty fucking cool, yeah, that's, man. That's definitely something I want to do. Yeah. I go see that and, you know, D.C. and Philly. Right. Liberty Bell. Hell Yeah. Independence Hall. But, it, you know, that's a cool thing about Boston. is so, it's, it's such an old city, and so much of the old colonial architecture has been preserved. Uh, you know, it's not like down in the South, you know, because m- so many of those major Southern cities were just burned to the ground, like Atlanta, for example. But one cool thing about Charleston is that Charleston has been mostly intact for all of its history. So you go to Charleston, you see, like, a lot of that really old architecture, too. It's cool as fuck. So, anyway... Uh, the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court said that all conventions, especially ones criticizing the state constitution, were illegal and dangerous. You know, it's like freedom of speech, anyone? Hello there. And then finally, uh, a lot of the people in the state government claimed that these meetings were the action of British infiltrators trying to stir up trouble. Russiagate, anyone? <laughs> You know, it's a lot of parallels. It is, isn't there? It's kind of funny. And uh, as a side note, during these meetings, when they were going on and, and plans of and courses of action were being discussed, a state representative from the West, Thomas Gold, introduced a bill abolishing the common police court of the state, which handled the debt cases, replacing it instead with justices of the peace, which charged much lower fees and were actually under a form of local control. The state courts the common police court were directly under state control. The state appointed the judges, the state appointed the officials and set the fee schedules schedules. So the common people had no check on the state courts whatsoever. And gold's bill also was going to abolish the license system for lawyers, which would open the legal field to anyone. And this bill of course, didn't even make it out of committee. It was killed immediately in the state Senate. So basically the state government told them to fuck off. And they adjourned on July 8th without making any reforms or even listening to the protesters. So the ruling class thought they had put the farmers back in their place and put this issue to bed. Well, or so they thought. So while some towns and clergymen were recommending patience and voting harder, the men of Pelham were fed up. A week after their convention to redress grievances, which was the last week of August 1786, at about O'Dark 100, several hundred men from Pelham and Greenwich, led by Captain Joseph Hines, marched toward Northampton, which was the county seat. Hines was an experienced leader, being a captain in the Massachusetts line, which was a state militia, during the Revolutionary War. The town leaders actually wanted Daniel Shays, who was from Pelham, to lead the Pelham section, but he actually refused. Shays didn't get involved with this whole thing until way later. Instead, the task fell to Deacon John Thompson, who was another Revolutionary War officer from Pelham. And this is funny. It's, it's like it's just, it, The book, it says this over and over again. This guy was leading this section. He was a Revolutionary War officer. It, over and over and over and over again. It just shows you how many of these guys were Revolutionary War veterans. So who were these men exactly, right? Conventional wisdom, like I said, claimed they were all poor proto-socialists or levelers as they were called at the time the levelers were a group of people in england that wanted to redistribute property from the rich classes to the poor classes classes they were kind of like a proto-socialist type thing um but it's funny also like 
there's a lot of libertarian roots in the levelers too. Like a lot of ideas about individual liberty, not economic liberty, but individual liberty as far as civil rights goes, first started in the levelers tradition. But the point was, is that it wasn't true. These guys were not trying to redistribute property or abolish all debts or anything like that. And they weren't all poor farmers either. Like I said, a lot of them were really well-respected community leaders, business owners, and other financially successful people. Now, of course, some were dirt poor farmers to be sure, but many were also owners of big time family farms, like in the top 20% wealth in the county, but they were just as likely to be in debt as the poor farmers were. Yeah. And of course, sure, many of these guys were deeply in debt, but not all of them. It wasn't just a debt revolt. Here's a big distinction. A large percentage of them were also Revolutionary War veterans, not just enlisted men, but plenty of officers marched on Northampton too. And I was telling this story to a buddy, uh, actually, and he was surprised. And he said to me, why would the soldiers fight against the government they fought to create? I mean, you know, it's easy to see, right? You go fight, you endure hardships, freezing winter, totalitarian discipline, disease, terrible conditions, terrible food, and some incompetent leadership under Washington, probably watching your friends die, you know, really traumatic experiences. And then winter comes, right? You got family to take care of. You got children at home. You need to get there. You need to take care of your affairs, but you can't leave. You are ordered to stay in winter at Valley Forge so George Washington can train you into his perfect army. You know, your wife is writing you letters telling you that she had to take out loans to hire farmhands for last year's harvest or to help just make sure everybody's got enough food for the winter. And obviously you sell what little military pay you get, you know, of paper notes for 5% of their value and you send it home. And then after the war, when you, when you were told that you just won your independence, you come home and your family is deeply in debt. And as soon as you get back, the tax man comes calling and you are getting dragged into court where it's a very real possibility that you'll lose your farm and be homeless or that you'll be in prison for debt in large part because you were away fighting a war. That's why you racked up debt in the first place. Because you can't farm if you're on a campaign, can you? And all that because the Massachusetts state government is controlled far away in Boston by the same fucking dude who you sold that paper bond to during the war for a few pennies. That same guy, because of his economic and his social status, he sat the fight out. Maybe he even got rich off wartime contracts, which, by the way, that was a major reason why the soldiers didn't get paid all the hard money. It all went to the merchants for war supplies. So you are asked to make financial sacrifices on top of sacrificing your health and your safety while risking your life, but that guy gets a big fat paycheck and he lives in total safety. Wouldn't that piss you off too? So as these guys marched on, they were joined by a large contingent from nearby Amherst, led by Captain Joel Billings, a Revolutionary War officer and a town selectman. When this group crossed the Connecticut River, they encountered several hundred men who were converging on Northampton from the northwest, uh, men from the hill towns in West Springfield. At dawn, they assembled into military formation, complete with fifes and drums, and marched right up to the Northampton Courthouse. Some of these men were armed with muskets, others were armed with swords or clubs, and some were completely unarmed. A few hours later, because the important people always show up after us working stiffs do, the judges showed up in wigs and black robes with the county sheriff leading them towards the courthouse, and they were denied entry by the rebels, who called themselves the Regulators, by the way. You remember that from earlier in the show? 
They didn't call themselves the traitors, the revolutionaries, the rebels, the dissidents, the insurgents, anything like that. Those names were assigned to them by the corporate controlled elite media of the time. But that word regulator had a very specific meaning to people at that time. It meant people that are rising up and morally throwing off the chains of the corrupt government. That's what it meant. So judges, of course, as we know, have big egos. And to save face, they met at a local Northampton leader's house. They agreed to meet a six-man delegation from the rebels who gave their grievances. The judges listened, and they agreed to, quote, continue all matters pending until November and then adjourned. They untied their horses, and they went home. And following this, the courts also were closed by armed men in Middlesex, Worcester, and Bristol counties as well. And the same scenario basically unfolded each and every time. I think what's really remar remarkable about this stage is that the rebels accomplished at least one of their objectives with really no violence whatsoever. Nobody was killed and very few people were hurt. The sheriffs didn't start shooting at them immediately. The town militias, even in places that didn't support the rebellion so far, let them pass. I think this shows us that there's a use in arms that's often overlooked, and it's the ability for people to protest and even seize control of government property without violence while preventing being attacked themselves because they retain the ability to defend themselves. You know, kind of like the Bundy Ranch standoffs early in the 2010s. That's a good point. Yeah. Only after their state courts were disrupted did the state government take notice of the Westerners. Governor James Bowden, who's the Massachusetts state governor, who was furious, he called out the militia. Of course, government's first instinct was to suppress the rebellion instead of well, maybe finding out what they wanted or assessing their own behavior and maybe seeing that how that might have played a part. There were, at this point in time, 90,000 men in Massachusetts with militia obligations. And the idea was that they would turn out to defend the area largely out of self-interest to protect their property. Now, of course, the elites didn't like the system because mustering the militia was largely up to individual militiamen. They, like George Washington, instead liked a standing army where the officers were elite, well-born men and the enlisted men did what they were told. I wonder why. And the obvious answer is because the militia system puts control and power back in the hands of the people. Yeah, the government can call up the militia and order them around, but because we don't have that totalitarian discipline structure like we do in the modern military, the militiamen have to agree with the orders they're given. That's huge. But there was a big change that happened because of the ratification of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, and it changed the militia leadership in an attempt to centralize power in the state. The top officers of the militia were all appointed by the legislature, including many of the local officers down to the captain level, which stopped the practice of the men electing their own officers, as was tradition. In theory, that made the state government in control of the militia, but as they found out, in theory and in reality are two very different things. And this was made apparent a few days after the Northampton courthouse was closed, when a crowd of about 100 angry white <laughs> angry white men, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself, with bayonets, blocked the orchestra judges from entering the courthouse. Chief Justice Artemis Ward tried to reason with the crowd. He was a Revolutionary War general. Ooh. And of course, he expected to be obeyed. He was heckled instead. <laughs> and I love this optic. I can't imagine how pissed off this dude was and how surprised he was. What do you mean? I'm a, I'm a general. They should respect my rank and my position. 
I would just, I would love to see Ad, Admiral William the Craven give a speech somewhere and just be heckled by everybody. I would <laughs> fucking love that. But anyway, we're so much more statist and military worshipy these days than they were back then. It would never fucking happen. At least not right now. So anyway, that second day at Northampton, that crowd had grown to about 300 or 400. And General Jonathan Warner, upon orders from Governor Bowden, called out the Worcester militia. Instead, the men refused the call up. And in fact, a lot of them joined the insurgents. The court was closed and agreed to postpone all cases which was another victory for the rebels. Now, Governor Bowden was completely fucking dumbfounded. I mean, he was thinking, like, how could the militia possibly refuse orders? Like, we're in charge of them. What's going on here? So he demanded an explanation, and the local sheriff, William Greenleaf, said the rebel forces got out, quote, much faster and quicker than those for support of authority, end quote. And this is an advantage, of course, of irregular forces. You know, the fact that they can move and concentrate and disperse so much faster than a, a force that has a rigid rank structure can. Obviously, because they're 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 working off their own volition. They're not waiting and standing around for orders. And then the uh, Chief Justice of the Worcester County Courthouse told him the militia was, quote, too much in favor of the people's measures to turn their guns on them, close quote. So that tells us a lot there too, man. It's like, this is the power of the militia system right here in action. And uh, another really remarkable event was that on the evening before the Berkshire County Court was set to open, our men from the surrounding town seized the courthouse. The next day, the militia under the command of General John Patterson marched into town with about a thousand men, which should have been more than enough to secure the court or even take it by force if they needed to. But when they met the, the armed men that came into town and closed the courthouse, somebody suggested a vote. They said men in favor of opening the court moved to one side of the highway and men favoring closing the court go to the other side. Nearly 800 men abandoned General Patterson and sided with the regulators. And this, I think, is just great, too, because it shows how widespread hatred of the state government was, and it shows how really eminently reasonable the reforms they're asking for were and how much of a problem the state government was causing the people in the backcountry. Because you've got to keep in mind, all these militia guys we're talking about right now, they're all from the backcountry. They're all from Western Massachusetts. They're dealing with the exact same problems that the Shazites are, which is another name for the rebels. <clears throat> so the thing is, though, is that the judges opened the court anyway, and but they quickly adjourned without doing any business whatsoever, and they retired to the house of a local leader. Now, some of the insurgents followed them there, and they demanded they sign a pledge not to hold court until a new constitution could be created or the old one could be modified. And three out of the four judges signed the pledge. The last one, who was a guy named Julio Woodbridge, completely refused, and nothing was done to him. And one of the last early events of Shays' Rebellion of note was that in Springfield. The judges opened the Supreme Judicial Court there and started to conduct business because the courthouse was occupied by the local militia and hundreds of, quote, respectable gentlemen assembled by General William Shepard, which blocked the access of nearly 1,000 pissed off farmers to the courthouse. The court was opened that day by to indict men who had broken up the courts in the other countries, counties, the stuff that had just happened. They were going to indict men for disrupting the judicial system. However, they couldn't find any jurors to hear the cases. Four days later, the chief justice suspended the operation of the court, which this is the this shows you the power of the jury system too. It's like if you know back to Theophilus Parsons, who argued that 
if the government wants to arrest or indict somebody who broke an unjust law, we'll let them because there is no way that a jury of your peers would ever convict somebody of, of breaking an unjust law. They would just say the law was bad. They'd nullify, the jury would nullify it. This goes a step beyond that saying like, yeah, if the government's being really shitty, the jury won't even show up. It's great. <laughs> and uh, hearing all this news, Governor Bowden was furious. And one thing about him, he's like an ultra conservative hardliner, especially on the issue of debt and taxes. He was very friendly with the uh, British, not the British, might as well be, but the Boston mercantile elite and had exacted heavy tax burdens specifically on the Western farmers to help his buddies out because so many of them were speculators holding a large number of government bonds. And another thing you have to keep in mind here is that the vast majority, like 70 to 80 to 90% of these government bonds are held by like 1% or 2% of the population at the most. I mean, they're very heavily concentrated in just a few hands. But of course, these people are extremely rich and they can buy power as long as it exists. So we get this kind of dynamic. But also, Bowdoin was furious because there were quite a few government officials criticizing his government at that time, like a guy named Moses Harvey. He was a state legislature legislator from Hampshire County, and this guy was a well-regarded Revolutionary War hero. He and his men had actually helped secure Boston during the war against the British when they desperately needed help from the backwoods men, which apparently the British, the Boston elite, forgot that happened for something. Uh, you know, whatever gratitude they had to the militia was gone by then, just a few years later. But Moses Harvey was also a militia captain. And not only did he refuse the call to arms against the Shazites, but he ordered his men to ignore the call too. And they complied because they respected him. And he also described his fellow representatives as, quote, thieves, knaves, robbers, and highwaymen, close quote. Which I just, that's not super relevant, but I just had to throw it in there because I thought it was great. And also, Chief Justice William Whiting was also a big time supporter of the people rebelling. He said it was also their fault too because they didn't pay attention to government affairs up until now. Uh, the quote to start the show, that was him. His idea was that when people, even though it was too, too late for them to vote, to act, to try to make things better, he thought that when they had discovered evil in their government, it was their duty to, quote, disturb government. <laughs> Which is just, I don't know, dude, something about that makes me laugh. It's Maybe it's the way it's put. It's like disturbing government. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so there were quite a few outspoken members of the Massachusetts state government against the government, but there were many more times government officials, mostly the conservatives, that agitated for really harsh measures against the rebels. One notable one was Sam Adams. Yes, that Sam Adams. Sons of Liberty, riot in the streets against the crown, Sam Adams. The libertarian firebrand. Well, him and his crew of wealthy Boston elites sign on to a document that praised the state government and the state constitution of 1780 and talked a lot of shit about the rebels. He also insisted that the rebels be hanged, all 4,000 of them, or at least imprisoned and lashed and then whipped on a regular basis after that. <laughs> he also said, quote, in monarchies, the crime of treason and rebellion may admit of being pardoned or lightly punished, but the man who dares rebel against the laws of a republic ought to suffer death. You hear that, dude? Dude, did this guy forget who he was like a decade ago? Right. Well, I think the thing is that he was always this guy. Okay, so to rebel against the crown, that's good. 
You know, it's fine to yeah. do that. You should actually fight as hard as you can because, you know, monarchies are bad. But if you vote, well, you can't complain. So no matter what the government does, because you have a say, the government is us. It's like, it's kind of like today when they're like, you don't, well, if you don't vote, you can't say nothing. Right. <laughs> it's like, no, if you, if you vote, you can't say nothing, motherfucker. I didn't consent to this shit. Fuck you. But anyway, no, it's just like, dude, it's such a disappointment to hear Sam Adams say this stuff. You know, the, lever- the legendary revolutionary firebrand turns out to be quite the fucking statist at the end of the day. It's really, I don't know, man. It honestly bummed me out quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, it did. It did bum me out too when I heard that. Right. But he kind of he redeems <clears throat> himself a little bit later with the con- constitutional convention and stuff. Yeah, kind of. A little of. bit, but still, it's still a dickhead right here. Yeah, I mean, just, I don't know, man. I just, I find it, I mean, maybe some guy who spends all of his time in Boston yeah. isn't really acutely aware to how much the people of Massachusetts are suffering. But what you have to keep in mind here is that in the, in the minds of the Shays Rebellion people, they're continuing the American Revolution. Like, the whole idea is that, okay, so we own ourselves, we all have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and... If a government is destructive to human flourishing or human liberty, then we should rise up and destroy it. And that's what they're doing. But this, you know, the Sam Adams guy, same thing. He's like, all right, so we can, we should fight off the monarchy, but once we do that, no more revolutions. Yeah. And this type of thinking has dominated American thought up until this day. It still does too. So basically the state offered to make some minor changes, not any that are even worth mentioning, one, because of time, and two, because they were really just minor tweaks in the tax collection. Yeah, they also did pass a few laws, including the Riot Act, you know, as in read you the Riot Act, which of course was also a big uh, project of Sam Adams and his sympathetic state representatives. And it said that sheriffs and militiamen would not be prosecuted for killing insurgents who failed to disperse or resisted capture, even if they were just being totally peaceful. Basically, the militia guys could go right, right up to him and just start bayoneting him. I mean, literally. And also, rioters would, quote, shall forfeit all their lands, tenements, goods, and chattels to the commonwealth, and shall be whipped 39 stripes on the naked back at the public whipping post, and shall suffer imprisonment for a term not exceeding 12 months. And close quote. And also, while in jail, they would be ripped, whipped every three months. And also, the government passed a law that suspended habeas corpus for a year and allowed sheriffs to jail people far away from their homes and for them to be tried away from home, too, which was an attempt at destroying the check on power that a jury signifies. And also passed was the Militia Act, which said, quote, Whomsoever officer or soldier shall abandon any post committed to his charge or shall speak words including others to do the like in time of engagement shall suffer death which is really kind of similar to the laws in Virginia today. You know, you think about it, the one that's going to prosecute and remove sheriffs and law enforcement officers if they don't enforce the new state gun laws. It's another parallel. It's fucking weird, huh? History repeats itself. Yeah, sure does. So I, I, can, I can be sure, too, if the term was existed, that the Shays rebels would probably be called domestic terrorists. I'm almost sure of it. <laughs> So basically, in the months from September to October to November, the insurgents ensured the courts were closed time and time again. The state tried to reopen them, called up the militia, and nobody responded. And another important thing, too, of the 637 Revolutionary War veterans in Northampton, only 23 answered the government's call to arms. This was a veterans' movement because so many of them 
had gotten fucked over so hard by the state government. So on November 28th, the governor decided to make use of all those new powers he had been granted. He issued warrants for the rest of five men, all Revolutionary War veterans, including Job Shattuck, who was a constant pain in the ass for the Massachusetts elite. He had a history of rioting and resisting any kind of uh, enforcement of tax law and things like that. And he basically protected his town against the state government for quite a long time. So they knew where these guys were. They, a detachment of state militia went to go confront them. And during that arrest, the men trying to serve the warrant injured at least one innocent bystander and maybe more. And if you read the quote from the dispatch, it basically says that they chopped off the breast of a woman and mangled an infant in its crib, which kind of sounds like atrocity propaganda to me. Yeah. But I do, we do know for a fact that at least one innocent bystander was slashed in the knee with a sword. So this whole thing set off a major storm of protest and greatly increased support for the regulation. And the lesson here, of course, is that Two, the two most important things an insurgency can have is one, grievances, and two, control the narrative. Uh, allowing the state to overreact and then portraying them as the assholes they are is always a great strategy for insurgencies. And as a matter of fact, that night, somebody set fire to the property of one of the town constables who helped serve the arrest. And finally, in late December, after almost three months of back county court closures, about 300 rebels led by Daniel Shays, who had finally joined in leading this thing, Luke Day and Eli Parsons marched into Springfield, Massachusetts, and forced the closure of the new session of the Hampshire County Court, which was their county court. They had just moved it around every time this, the Shaysites had closed a courthouse. From Conceived in Liberty, Volume 5, quote, by the end of 1786, it was clear to the conservative rulers of Massachusetts that the regulator rebellion in the West could not be crushed by the county militias. Actually, they could have simply allowed the courts to remain closed, as had held true during and after the Revolutionary War. But the forces of conservatism could not leave the people of the interior alone, and instead, they felt the rebellion to be a threat to their mystical sovereign power. I love Murray Rothbard. Yeah, I I, I literally just listened to that today, and <laughs> I, I thought that was awesome. Oh, that's great. Hence, Massachusetts prepared to escalate the violence and raise an army against its own citizens and had appealed to Congress for aid, close quote. So the Continental Congress had agreed to actually add another 1,300 soldiers to the 700-man federal army. Yeah, that's it, 700. I was in a brigade that's bigger than this total number <laughs> today, but uh, – claimed that these new soldiers were actually to, quote, fight Indians in the Ohio Valley. And even people at the time saw this as total bullshit. It was clearly a response to the Shazites. So Governor Bowdoin then, for his army, he didn't actually get any authorization from the legislature, which is something that would have been seen as very tyrannical in that day under normal circumstances. Now, of course, emergencies have a habit of making people look the other way on abuse of power somehow, which is why government loves to create and exploit them. But that's what happened. So General Benjamin Lincoln w was to uh, assume command of this new army. Lincoln was another fat boy like Henry Knox, who was almost 300 pounds, which is kind of crazy in a time when people typically don't have enough food to eat. Uh, and honestly, though, he wasn't too impressive of a military figure. He had been wounded in action in Saratoga, but he had also surrendered an entire brigade to Sir Henry Clinton at Charlestown which, in other words, was the single biggest surrender of American forces in history up to that point, and it wasn't topped until the Civil War. 
This is one of those things that normally would get you drummed out of the military. But he had friends in high places, including George Washington, who gave him the honor of receiving Lord Cornwallis' sword at Yorktown. Funding this new army, however, would prove a challenge. So Bowdoin, for whatever reason, he didn't want to go get money from the legislature, so instead he turned to wealthy Boston elites who had an interest in getting the taxes collected to contribute 4,000 pounds needed to equip this military. So yes, he hired a fucking private army as governor. Fucking crazy. Few of the elites, yeah, they would kick in some money, but they had very little interest in actually getting commissions in this army. <laughs> surprise, surprise, and when somebody else did the fighting for him like usual, except for a few guys that were either sons of rich men that were in debt or were seeking glory. Only the well-born, of course, were offered commissions because this is an elitist private army. What do you expect? The uh, regular people, no matter how much leadership experience they had, they were only allowed enlistments. Now, if the Shazites had actually wanted to fight this army, which is some foreshadowing later on, they probably could have done quite well just because of this reason alone. They had very little experienced leadership. But also, in this army, blacks were not allowed, of course. You know, this is Massachusetts in the 1780s, what do you expect? Um, the recruits came from the eastern county's militias, which were mostly loyal to the government. And the other thing, though, is that hardly any of them were veterans. Now, plenty of veterans lived in the eastern counties, but few of them wanted to turn out for service in this military because they knew what it was going to go do. Now, Lincoln expected veterans to turn out in droves, but hardly any had any interest, like I said. Um, and of course that's because Lincoln was a elitist commissioned officer that had zero understanding of the feelings and ideas of the enlisted man, which is a theme that's continued to this day once again. <laughs> and obviously, uh, the backwoods, Western areas supplied very few soldiers, even though some did volunteer mostly for the money, I'm sure. But what this standing army, what this army being stood up did do, however, it radicalized the backcountry folk driving them to the regulation. And of course, there was a deep fear at this time of standing armies in America, which was also a factor. And the fact that this was basically the governor's own private army made that fear even worse. And really, the only thing that stopped large numbers of people from taking up arms against the government was the local clergy, the local priests and pastors and whatnot, who counseled patients and working within the system. And I can't help but wonder if they were not there if things would have played out differently. <clears throat> and like states always do, they quickly found a new enemy with which to demonize, Daniel Shays. And of course, the guy hadn't even been that heavily involved and he'd been pretty slow to join up. He actually didn't even lead the Pelham men's march in the courthouse, remember, though he had been offered command. But he did now command the largest insurgent regiment. Once this word had spread, though, that he was in command of his regiment, local newspapers started running stories from people who supposedly knew him or served with him in the war, and uh, many accounts said he was some kind of wannabe dictator that had intentions of burning Boston to the ground and then eliminating all debts and redistributing property and you know hanging rich people and all this type of shit. So basically just typical baseless state propaganda. And hence, this is why the regulation goes down in history as Shays' Rebellion. That's at least part of the reason. And also these newspapers made a pretty big deal of the fact that Shays had sold that sword he got from Marquis de Lafayette. And he claimed that the papers claimed that it showed that he was of poor character. He had very little you know, values and very much, in, very little interest in, you know, the, the government and the revolution and things like that. 
But of course, it couldn't possibly be because he was poor and in debt, could it? <laughs> that's that's not couldn't possibly be a fucking reason and it couldn't possibly be the fucking reason this whole thing started either which of course the real reason why they started was not in the newspapers at all because they were controlled by the elites as they've always been yeah fake news fake news exactly <laughs> <clears throat> and henry knox stirred up a lot of this stuff too he was the one that originally made the claim about them being levelers which is the leveling of property titles leveling of property ownership that's where the name comes from and he actually sent that in a letter to George Washington, who trusted Knox implicitly. Now, Knox was a pretty brave guy personally, and he had had some pretty impressive exploits during the Revolutionary War. But he's another one of those guys that once he gets into power, because he's Secretary of War now, he turns out to be a total shitbag. And actually, a big reason why Washington came out of retirement and back into political life was because Knox hysterically claimed that they were anarchists, which, hey, I mean... You know, that'd be cool if they were because we're fucking anarchists, but they weren't. They really wanted some just basically small D democratic reforms to the government. That's it. They weren't even calling for the abolition of debt. They were still willing to pay their debts. They just needed time and they wanted to pay them in a different way besides gold and silver. So, but either way, you know, this type of stuff was the reason that there was a lot of hysteria around Boston about Shays Rebellion. And also, there had been multiple other smaller rebellions that had happened in places like Pennsylvania, Vermont, New Hampshire. I mean, clearly, these guys thought that the new rebellion post-American Revolution was spreading. And the people that had fought the revolution at this time, a lot of them had realized that they had been sold a faulty bill of goods. All this commitment to self-government and independence and freedom and liberty, but as soon as you turn around and you have the new the dust settle, you're being taxed at a heavier rate than you were before the war. It's crazy. So anyway, Lincoln had put this army together. It had been equipped and outfitted with new rifles, new cartridge boxes, new new powder horns, everything. And this army started its march east towards the occupied courthouse towns. And I'm going to put a picture in the show notes that shows you where all the courthouses that were taken over were. So you can kind of follow along and refer to that in the story if that helps you. But the first courthouse that they got to was Worcester County Courthouse on January 23rd. And the occupation of this courthouse by the army allowed it to stay open. And as the uh, Lincoln's army advanced, the insurgent army retreated west back to Hampshire County. And at this point, of course, the regulators had only seized and shut down courthouses. That was really it. There was very little violence up until this point. But once news of Lincoln's army reached the rebels, they decided to even the odds because they were coming after them and march on the Springfield Arsenal. So they might be uh, better equipped as the state army surely would be. You know, they had to get XDs. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You got it. <laughs> no, nah, you'd have to go to Croatia for those. Of course, because, yeah, it says, you know, it's funny. My XD on the slide says Springfield Armory, Massachusetts, and then it says made in Croatia. <laughs> Massachusetts, Croatia, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this Springfield Arsenal at this point in time was the main armory for the Federal Army, not the Massachusetts State Army, the Federal Army. And in there, they had field guns, howitzers. Uh, thousands of brand new muskets, lots of powder, uh, shot, everything you'd need to fight a war. But before they got there, 1,200 militiamen beat them there, working for the state under General William Shepard, who was a colonel during the Revolutionary War. 
He assumed, correctly, that the Rebels had intended to march on the arsenal, but that was only because he figured they were trying to overthrow the state government. And he was thinking about this, and he had kind of wondered why the Rebels hadn't yet seized the arsenal and made it their main base of operations, which, yeah, if the Shazites, here's the thing. Daniel Shays was an experienced military officer. The rest of these guys were. If they actually wanted to pick a fight, if they actually wanted violence, they would have made a beeline for the arsenal. And they didn't. They just wanted the court shut down. But the state has escalated violence over and over again to the point where now they feel like they need to. Now, legally speaking, Shepard actually didn't have any legal authorization to either seize the armory or use its arms. And that's because it belonged to the feds and he needed actual written orders from the Secretary of War, Henry Knox, to do so. But Leonard Richard writes, quote, Shepard knew Knox wouldn't make much of a fuss if he didn't have that written authorization, end quote. How about that? The state is willing to look the other way when its people break laws that are furthering the interest of the state, but when the common people break laws in defense of their liberty, they are willing to literally send an entire army after them, the creation of and deployment of which was also illegal. Kind of a double standard, isn't it? So Shepard, his men got to work and they set up cannons and howitzers around the arsenal. I don't know if they dug rifle pits or anything like that. I would imagine they probably would. But then again, it's January, Massachusetts. The ground's probably frozen cock stiff. So maybe not. The uh, And here's the thing is that the rebels had very little chance of actually capturing the arsenal, but that's not usually how the story is told. Usually... It's a uh, claim that the rebels were very dangerous and they were a direct threat to the safety of the people of Massachusetts and the people of Boston. So it's a good thing this brave militia officer stopped them in their tracks with a valiant battle, which is not the truth at all. These guys, they had old muskets and only about half of them actually had firearms. And the rest of the guys either had swords, clubs, or nothing. They did have about double the men, though, that the contingent at the arsenal. So there was about 2,300 men in the Shazite camp and about 1,200 militiamen at the arsenal. And prior to actually advancing on the arsenal, the rebel force split up into three elements, each commanded by an experienced Revolutionary War captain. Daniel Shays had 1,200 men east of Springfield at Wilbraham. Eli Parsons was positioned to the north at Chicopee with 400 men, and Luke Day was in West Springfield, west of Springfield, with 400 men. These guys were several miles apart, and they had to actually dispatch riders to communicate. So the basic plan was a three-pronged assault on the 25th of, Jan 25th of January. But right before, Luke Day decided to change that plan by himself. And he's actually sent an ultimatum to General Shepard, Shepard giving him 24 hours to vacate, and he promised to, quote, give no quarter if they did not. And at the same time, Day sent notes to Shays and Parsons that the attack was to be delayed until January 26th. Those notes never reached the commanders because writers that carried these messages were actually intercepted by government troops. So in light of this showing of Murphy's Law, two of the three regiments trudged the, the chest-deep snow, four feet of snow, to attack the arsenal in dense formation, eight deep, shoulder to shoulder, up this giant hill that surrounded Springfield Armory. And there was an advance guard of about 400 on horseback, which was commanded by Captain James White, who was a Revolutionary War vet, well regarded for his valor in combat. So General Shepard sees him coming, and he decides he's going to scare them off at first. 
he has his cannons fire over their heads. But as I can attest from working traffic control points in Iraq, shooting warning shots at people coming towards you has a significant chance of them just hitting the gas and trying to get the fuck out of there heading towards you. So the advance guard started trotting up the hill of the armory once that first cannon shot, you know, they were at first just walking their horses up. But once that first cannon shot went off, they, they quickened their horses up to a trot. Uh, but the problem was the rear of the element panicked and over 12 men fell off their horses, apparently just from sheer fear, the accounts say. And then Shepard ordered the cannons to be fired at waistband height. And at the same time, the cannons at the top of the hill went off. There was a howitzer hidden on the rebel's flank that fired some canister shot. So these are grape shot rounds. They're basically, it's like a giant shotgun shell full of lead balls. And this makes a fill in the blank, Nick. Do you know? I know you probably don't. You probably know what I'm talking about. A shot, like a shot, like a, like a shotgun spray. That's true. But what they're doing, like their, their tactic here is a, oh, I don't know. L-shaped ambush. Oh. The workhorse of ambushes. The I most to, effective. I to say ambush. Yeah. I mean, you're, that was, that's it. But yeah, this is, this is a military tactic that's still taught yeah. to this day where you have a short element and a long element. Um, uh, yeah. You were, you were talking about that. Well, shit. I forget the episode number, but yeah. Where we had those, mm-hmm. uh, it was like coordinates or whatever. We were talking about like War Machine or something. It's a few episodes back. Anyway, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> anyways. So here's the thing is that the rebels really never had a chance to avoid getting caught up in this. Um, four men were killed. Quite a few more were wounded. And the front of the element scattered, ending the assault. There's a lot of what ifs in this situation. The first is if the assault had gone as planned. I mean, who knows? That might have changed things with a three-prong attack from all different directions. Uh, the second was, were the rebels actually expecting resistance? Maybe, maybe not. And had they committed to violent action? I mean, up until this point, everything was really peaceful. And who knows, if they'd actually come looking for a fight, things might have been way different. Because it sounds, from what I understand, the men were actually within musket range when those cannons opened up, or at least close to it. So who knows, you know, the snow was also a big factor too because they couldn't have moved. They couldn't have actually charged the hill. You know, it, it's hard to tell. Um, but they had also committed one of the mortal sins of irregular warfare, and that was to allow your standing conventional army opponent to dictate when and where the fight happens and to engage them in open combat. That's a big no-no when you have a weaker irregular force. Eli Parsons had insisted that their original plan, if it had actually gone according to plan, would have worked. And yeah, maybe the snow was a huge factor. The The deep snow really slowed down advancing troops. I mean, yeah, I guess it's possible they could have taken the hill because, you know, cannons take forever to reload. And it's not, we don't know if they were militia with muskets dug in on top. We really don't know. There's not much detail. Just in sheer numbers, yeah, they probably could have taken it with some pretty heavy losses. But either way, what if they did? Well, then they had cannons and maybe this story plays out different. But maybe that spurs on even more demands for centralized government later on, and maybe we end up with a constitution that doesn't have a Second Amendment or a Fourth. This event played a major part in shaping the constitution and and shaping the Federalist Republic and getting rid of the Articles of Confederation. Uh, We'll talk about that at the end. Or who knows, maybe this rallies people to change cause, and maybe the course of American history is totally different. But it's doubtful because the thing is, the elites and the oligarchs had already concentrated so much control and power. I see that being really hard to undo, but not impossible. So either way, 
After this clusterfuck of an assault, Chase pulls his troops back to Pelham and Lincoln's army set into the valley east of there. They were going town to town trying to pick up recruits because they still were about a thousand short of their 4,000 man goal, but instead they didn't find anybody that wanted to join. And they were running into this passive resistance. People were heckling them, talking shit to them. They were refusing to provide information about the rebels. And also the greatest part, Lincoln's army was forced to pay for food and drink from, from these people. And Shay's army got these things for free, which is pretty fucking awesome. Eventually, uh, Shay's ites, the regulators, they set up camp at Petersham, which is pretty close to Pelham. And they did raid some local shops for supplies while being pursued by Lincoln's armies. And because of their superior advantage in weapons, if Lincoln could only hold his army together, it was really only a matter of time before he would actually encircle and capture the Shazites. Um, now, if the Shazites were committed to violence and they were using real guerrilla tactics, things might have been different, but they were not. Uh, but Lincoln's army had serious problems too. I mean, the harassment of the locals aside, he had to stop sending out patrols because of massive numbers of desertions. Uh, I think that's pretty funny. Even the people that didn't want to join the Shays Rebellion, I think they had so much sympathy for the rebels that they didn't want to fight them, honestly. Uh, there were some skirmishes, however, between the locals and the army, but there was really nothing major. So on Saturday, 3rd of February, Lincoln was about 20 miles north of Petersham. But he got word that Shays was there in Petersham. So he forced his army to march at night through hostile territory in a blizzard to get there. Now, Shays and his men were kicked back thinking the blizzard conditions would stop anybody in their right mind, uh, you know, from coming to find them. But Lincoln, of course, is not in his right mind. Uh, now, if they had been alert, they could have totally cut off and really done some real damage to Lincoln's troops who were spread out over five miles of terrain. They could have hit and run them to death until they cut their column, their ribbons. I mean, really, like there's so many missed opportunities here, which I think like these guys were not stupid. They were military. They were militarily savvy. I think they just didn't want to kill people, really. But either way, they were not alert. These guys were asleep, including the sentries for the command staff. Quote unquote. So on Sunday morning at 9 a.m., Lincoln's men assaulted Petersham and started to confront and encircle uh, some of the rebels, but Shays and much of his command staff slipped away, no problem. And here's a funny thing Lincoln's reputation was built on this assault, this daring attack on the rebel stronghold. He claimed it was some type of major victory, but that doesn't really reflect what actually happened here. First is the account of him bravely marching through inclement weather. The dude was almost 300 pounds. He was fat. His ass is not marching anywhere in the snow. His ass was riding a fucking horse. He literally was not fit enough to march this distance. Now, of course, his men marched. He didn't. Officer first enlisted thing right there. They get the credit for your fucking hard work. And second off, too, is his insistence that he captured 150 rebels, even though not a single officer was jailed and there were really only a handful of privates captured that probably had no idea what they were doing there anyway. And this, this really marked the end of Shays' Rebellion. It fizzled out without much fanfare. And emboldened by that big victory, quote unquote, the Massachusetts elite called for even harsher measures against the rebels, which led to the Disqualification Act. This barred all rebels from serving on juries, holding town or other offices, and voting for civil or military offices for three years, 
It also barred them from having jobs as teachers, innkeepers, or retailers of alcohol. And that teacher thing is interesting. You have an idea of thoughts why? Why? Think about the power of education. I mean, government education is not nearly as developed as it is in the 20th century, but I wonder if they didn't want school, they didn't want school kids hearing about how, you know, they wanted to stick to the script, right? They didn't want to hear about the treatment of the Shazites and what the government did to them. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Either way, interestingly, Lincoln didn't care much for the disqualification act. He actually thought it quote, violated Republican principles and amounted to an admission that the goals of the American Revolution had failed, which I think is a very interesting admission because I think that's absolutely true. Um, The total casualties in this rebellion were pretty low. Um, Four of the Shazites were killed, about 15 were wounded, and one innocent bystander was wounded by government troops, with also one government soldier was killed later on. And after the dispersal of the rebels, there were quite a few skirmishes, one of which resulted in the deaths of two rebels, one prisoner, and one government soldier. <clears throat> after the rebellion, Shays and some of the other rebel leaders fled to Vermont, which at that time was still an independent republic and one of the freest states in the Americas, if not the most free. Quote, the state had no taxes. This is from uh, Leonard Richard's book. The state had no taxes, attracted army deserters and other riffraff, and refused to honor the property rights, quote-unquote, of land speculators from other states, end quote. There was a lot of talk of Vermont annexing the rebellious portion of western Massachusetts at that time, which was a real concern for the Massachusetts elite to lose their tax cattle, which paid their bond values. The leadership of Vermont, Ethan Allen and Governor Thomas Crittenden, had refused to help the Massachusetts elite recapture the rebels who had fled to Vermont. However, the Vermont Assembly was afraid any connection with the rebels would jeopardize Vermont security. So they passed a resolution forcing the governor to act to help in the capture and return of the rebels to Massachusetts. The governor said he'd comply, but he really didn't do anything in pursuit of that goal. And as a matter of fact, at that time, the rebels were staying on land right next to the governor's house. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking, I love that. (laughs) Uh, Eventually, though, the governor raised troops to find them, but by that time, they had fled back into Massachusetts itself. So after the rebellion, then, and then the governor has to put the broken state back together, supposedly. So they came up with two policies. One was for rank-and-file rebels, and the other one was for the leadership. The rank-and-file had to, quote, surrender their arms, admit they had rebelled against the state, take an oath of allegiance, and pay a fee of nine pence to a justice of the peace who certified that they had met these conditions. Then, for a period of up to three years, they were disqualified from holding office, voting, teaching school, serving on juries, working in taverns or inns, and selling liquor, end quote. After that, they had to prove to the state they had been good citizens and law-abiding, and this stopped them from being hanged, whipped, or jailed. The leaders, on the other hand, they were excluded from the pardons, including Daniel Shays and the eight other rebel leaders. Also excluded were any insurgents who held public office or had commissions in the militia and all who had already been indicted. The high court began moving from county to county to hear cases because keep in mind at this time there wasn't like a centrally located Supreme Court because it was too much trouble to transfer prisoners back and forth from the local jail to the court. So as a result, the judges went to them. This was common at this time. So... At the end of that day, 14 men were sentenced to death. 
including James White, who was the leader of the assault on Springfield. Now, of those sentenced to death, actually none of them were hanged. Uh, Bowden reduced the original number from 14 to 6, who were all obviously just scapegoats. The only one who had an actual serious charge was Jason Parmenter, who had actually killed a government soldier in the shootout, the only government soldier to die during the rebellion. The state had granted reprieves to most of the men who were doomed to be executed, usually at the last minute, just to try to make a statement and to scare them. However, Molly Wilcox and Abigail Austin, who were two wives of the condemned men, they actually smuggled saws into the Berkshire County Jail where their husbands were being held. And the husbands broke out of jail with these saws. <laughs> Tell you what, they're both fucking keepers right there, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so you might wonder why there were no actual hangings given how pissed off the governor was over the rebellion. And the most likely answer is that the state was afraid of repercussions from executing popular and sympathetic figures. <clears throat> and also by then, John Hancock, who we'll get to in a minute, he had taken over the government by this point, and he issued full pardons to all the men. However, before he was elected, two men had already been hanged, John Bly and Charles Rose. The grand total was 18 death sentences, two of which were carried out, 700 indictments, and about 4,000 confessions of rebellion. Daniel Shays, for his part, he had actually moved back to Massachusetts in 1788 after being pardoned. He did receive a small pension for his service in the Revolutionary War, which was a major political issue at that time that a lot of guys didn't get. But he lived out the rest of his life in poverty, spending the rest of his days in crushing alcoholism. Kind of sucks, honestly. Yeah. He possibly quite possibly never got over the events of the rebellion and the feeling of that type of defeat. He died in 1825. And he also probably, he was really made a public scapegoat when he didn't deserve to be. So I think that probably had something to do with it too. So in April of 1787, Governor Bowden got his ass kicked at the polls. Uh, John Hancock, who, ran, who was the former governor of Massachusetts, swept in office there. Even with all the men barred from voting for taking part in the rebellion, which is a large number, Bowdoin still got his ass handed to him. Who, you know, Hancock was always popular with the backcountry folk and had a reputation for treating them much more fairly. But you know, it never fails. You give the state a chance to show how evil they are and you'll never be disappointed. The conservative hardliners, though, got rolled out of office with about three-fourths of the seats in the state house turning over and about half the seats in the Senate turning over. The only ones that remained from before were the representatives of the Boston elite and the towns on the coast, the towns of the merchant class, who obviously are going to vote for their guys no matter what. The legislature then undid much of the reaction to Shay's Rebellion, repealing the Disqualifying Act, and Hancock offered full pardons to anyone who took part in the rebellion if they took a loyalty oath to the state. The nine leaders who were then given the death penalty were also pardoned by Hancock. Luke Day, however, was captured in New Hampshire in 1787 and also pardoned. Shays and Parsons were pardoned with the provision they could never again hold civil or military office. Now, after the rebellion, the new legislature did enact some major reforms, including the abolition of imprisonment for debt, the drastic lowering of court fees, the, the lowering of poll taxes, and however, though, little was done about the restructuring of public debt or the payment of speculators, or the excise taxes that favored wealthy coastal merchants. So, 
what do we think of all this then? While the insurgency failed in a tactical sense, it was actually somewhat of a success in this strategic sense, like the goals it wanted to achieve. So the armed illegal disobedience of the state provided the motivation for the government to address the grievances that they had ignored for years. And also, the government's overreaction to the rebels gave the rebels tons of support, an important factor in insurgent warfare. Uh, had they could have done things differently and better, absolutely. Um, I think that if they were going to seize the arsenal, they should have fully committed to violence right then and there. That would have changed things quite a bit. But they also could have just not seized the arsenal, waited for Lincoln to come in t- into the West and just harass his army until they gave up and quit. Entirely possible. However, there was an equal reaction that conservatized many of the wealthy speculators in the landed class. They felt that the Massachusetts government would never actually be able to pay its part of the debt. So they changed their support for a national government that would assume the debts of the states, which converted many of them into nationalists, which is something we know today in history as federalists, but they were actually nationalists. I can only imagine the scare campaign that followed about, see, this is why we need a strong central government because these weak governments are vulnerable to tax uprisings. I can, I can just imagine that hearing that after Shays' Rebellion, which is how it made it into your history textbook. That was what we were told about the Articles of Confederation in school. Also, Alexander Hamilton took big advantage of this uh, event. He wanted to centralize government very badly, and he wanted direct control of the treasury, and he also in- appreciated... Or he, he was really obsessed with the idea of debt, and he always you know, said a national debt is a national blessing, which is just fucking crazy. If I had $100,000 in credit card debt, I would not consider it a fucking blessing, that's for sure. But anyway, so he'd been pushing for a constitutional convention for a while, and in large part, Shay's Rebellion helped him make the argument. He was absolutely hysterical about the attempt of the regulators to abolish all debts and all property and to establish some kind of socialist utopia, even though, once again, their demands were clearly stated and were none of the above. But Hamilton could not resist the temptation to use the events to further his nationalist agenda. And George Washington and James Madison, just like Hamilton, took this tack which totally dismissed the very real, legitimate grievances of the rebels. But they also wanted to confiscate the arms of all the Shazites. So, it, you know, it's so often these guys, these big figures, they speak out of both sides of their mouth. You know, you just had that Madison quote about armies and debts and taxes. You have guys resisting that and they're like, oh, you shouldn't have guns, which is pretty fucked up. However, Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, was much more reasonable. He said, quote, that repression was far worse than rebellion for the people and also said, quote, Were it left to me to decide if we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should hesitate, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter, which is pretty interesting. And there's another quote that's attributed to him. Um, It's often thought to be about the revolution, but it's actually about Shays' Rebellion, and I'm going to read it to you right now. Quote, the British ministry have so long hired their gazetters to repeat and model into every form lies about our being in anarchy that the world has at length believed them, that the English nation has believed them, that the ministers themselves have come to believe them, and what is more wonderful, we have believed in them ourselves. Yet where does this anarchy exist? Where did, where did it ever exist except in the single instance of Massachusetts? And can history produce an instance of a rebellion so honorably conducted? I say nothing of its motives. They were founded in ignorance, not wickedness. I don't know about that. God forbid we should ever be 20 years without such a rebellion. 
The people cannot be all and always well-informed. The part which is wrong will be discontented in proportion to the importance of the facts they misconceive. If they remain quiet under such mis misconceptions, it's, it is a lethargy, the forerunner of death to the public liberty. We have had 13 states independent 11 years. There has been one rebellion. That comes to one rebellion in a century and a half for each state. What country ever existed a century and a half without a rebellion? And what country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. The remedy is to set them right as to the facts, pardon and pacify them. What signify a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. Our convention hath been too much impressed by the insurrection of Massachusetts, and in the spur of the moment they are setting up a kite to keep the hen yard in order. I hope to God this article will be rectified before the new constitution is accepted. People take that tree of liberty quote out of context. They think yeah. they're talking about the American Revolution. No, Jefferson was talking about Shays Rebellion. He was fully approving of the rebellion just because the people in charge, they need to know, hey, motherfucker, we got guns. You better be cool. If you don't, we'll fuck you up. That's very important because here's the thing. It is in the nature of government to grab as much power as it possibly can. And if the people don't push back with arms if necessary, they will take and take and take and take until we get to the point now where we're talking about banning just regular intermediate caliber rifles. And here's the thing. The last rebellion in this country, the last major one, <sighs> I don't know. There are several ones you could say. The Civil War was not a rebellion. It was a war of succession. So I would say we're, past, we're well past due for a rebellion in every state. But anyway, that was Jefferson's quote. I think there's some very important knowledge in there. Um, and once again, it's not about the American Revolution. It's about Shays' Rebellion. And then, of course, the end of the reaction here, too, is that I think that Shays' Rebellion did a lot to push people towards accepting the Constitution because of the fear of tax revolts from the elites and the fear that the tax revolts would stop bond money from getting paid out. Uh, <clears throat> keep in mind, the Constitution was passed by a very narrow margin. In Massachusetts, the convention passed it by 11 votes. In New York, it passed by three. Without Shays' Rebellion, I don't think we ever get there. And it's entirely possible that we still live under the Articles of Confederation, which might not be such a bad thing after all. And of course, this also brought Washington out of retirement. He was... Uh, spending his days at Mount Vernon, you know, kind of experimenting with farming. But this brought him back into political life, which also made him play a major part in the early republic and also the putting down of the Whiskey Rebellion several years later. So, you know, this is, this is a huge part. This story is a huge part of how we got to where we are today. And also keep in mind that the bondholders that pushed all the taxes on the Massachusetts farmers they were a major supporter and a major reason behind why the Constitution got passed. And they were also a major reason why the Constitution had a power to tax and wanted it to take on state debts because they wanted to make sure those bonds got paid back. That's, a, that's why I love Murray Rothbard as a historian so much because he understood the economic angle of things. Historians, as a, as a group, they're, they're liberals and leftists, so they obviously are economically illiterate, so they miss all this stuff. 
but Rothbard never did. And then one last thing before we're done here. So Shays' Rebellion, the first official account of it was a book written by a guy named George Richards Mignot. And he was a Governor Bowden's personal assistant slash secretary. Now, here's the thing, is that he wrote the first um, quote-unquote official history of Shays' Rebellion, and his version is what made it into the history books with some minor modifications. Now, he treated the rebels' grievances with complete disregard. He basically totally marginalized them and just just portrayed them as poor debtors who wanted to get out of paying their debts and they wanted to socially you know, confiscate all property and so on and so forth. And then the Boston elite and their government servants were exalted. And obviously it's easy to see why he was the personal secretary of James Bowden. His boss was the one leading the charge against the fucking, the Shazites. And uh, of course, much of mainstream history is based on this and it's not accurate in a lot of spots. A good example is the retreat from Springfield, right? Mignot claimed that Shays had taken civilians hostage when he was retreating from the armory, but there's no accounts of that firsthand whatsoever. And then we're going to close it out with a quote from Mignot. No, fuck it. From a a quote, God, it's been a long show, man. A quote from Leonard Richards. Quote, more telling, however, was Mignot's treatment of state authorities. He hid virtually all their warts. No reader would ever realize that at least one chief justice, along with hundreds of revolutionary veterans, had blamed the Commonwealth's troubles on an attempt by the Boston aristocracy to plunder the state's taxpayers for personal gain. Missing was also also much of the harsh treatment recommended by the hardliners and the unpopularity of the Bowdoin administration in much of the state. The refusal of the militia to rally behind the governor was downplayed, as were the problems General Lincoln had in recruiting veterans and the animosities that made it difficult, if not impossible, for the Hancock men and the Bowdoin men to work together. Indeed, whenever Mignot took up matters that had divided the governing elite, he was careful not to name names and to present both sides as pursuing the common goal of restoring law and order. Now, George Washington actually really liked this book. And this is how people learned about Shays Rebellion, and it has distorted history ever since. Even the name is the wish of the elites. Shays Rebellion came from this book. It was never called, nobody else ever called it Shays Rebellion before that, including the Shaysite themselves. And I'm guilty of it too. I've been guilty of it all show, and I know this shit. It's just deeply, it's one of those things that's just deep-seated in history. And this means their version of history is the one they got told. You know, the winner writes history, of course. So what do we say about Shays' Rebellion then? What are the important points here? I think you can list quite a few that we've hit on like throughout the episode. My brain is fried, so I can't think to, I can't think to name them all right now. But one thing I want to leave you with is that America claims to care and support and love and respect its veterans It's all bullshit lip service, and it always has been. America has always treated its veterans like dirt. And this is not like a boo-hoo, poor me type thing, but this is is how history has always been. These guys, these foot soldiers in the revolution, enlisted men, junior officers, whose names we don't know, unless they rise up and fight the government. That's the only reason we know Daniel Shays or Luke Day or any of these guys' names. Here's the thing. They were told that we that we believe in personal liberty. They were told 
that self-determination is important, that self-government matters. They were chafing under British oppression and rule. And then they were told by the elites, join your sword with ours, join your arms with ours, help us cast off the British so we can start a republic where individual liberty is the most important value. So these guys gave so much of themselves. Some of them died. Shays was wounded. Many men, thousands and thousands died at Valley Forge. They sacrificed so heavily, their family sacrificed. They went hungry. They went into crushing amounts of debt. They, their businesses and family farms fell into disrepair. They had to hire people. They went through a lot of hardships. And these are the same group of people, right? They declared their independence from Great Britain a full year before the Declaration of Independence was written. They believed in this stuff. They cared about it a lot. But for so many of the elites and the popular people, the, the people whose names we know today, they were just co-opting this movement for their own purposes. And it was just bullshit lip service to them. Henry Knox and James Bowden and George Washington didn't give two fucks about personal liberty. They didn't care about that stuff. They just say it. But the people like Daniel Shays and, and you know Hines and Luke Day, they did care about it. And they made the sacrifices that proved that. So after all this hardship, they come back to their farms and get placed under heavier tax burdens than the British had ever put on them. Thank you for your service indeed. And, and, and you know, the, the, the biggest insult of all, when these guys were fighting this war, they didn't get paid, right? They got paid in these bullshit pieces of paper that they had to sell for, for nothing to wealthy people who didn't fight. And then these wealthy people, once the war is over, are the same ones that are advocating for the taxes that get placed upon their backs. Nowhere in this story do any of these guys say, you know what? I think these guys have done enough for our cause, for liberty, for the United States, for Massachusetts. Nowhere. Nowhere does ever say that. You think that if you give so much of yourself to a cause like this, that the people in power would respect that and would, and would say, okay, Maybe we'll place some taxes on something else, or maybe we'll cut the value of the bonds, but that doesn't happen because they don't give a fuck about you. They never have, and they never will. This has never changed throughout American history. It's still true today. America has always shit on its veterans, but it's not just America's problem. That's every, every government, every state, everywhere always shits on the people that fights at wars because we are disposable to them, and that's all there is to it. So many guys... Uh, I want to thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I know it's been a long ass show. We have almost fucking got to be three hours here. Uh, there is one last thing I do want to say before we close. And that is the question is how does a libertarian grapple with the idea of the American revolution? And the idea is this: there's a lot of disappointments, but there's a lot of great triumphs too. And a lot of inspirational things. The way that we don't deal with it, we don't twist it into a cartoon character version of the triumph of liberty over tyranny. Obviously, look at the story I just told you, aka don't take all the founders at their word. Obviously, there are some very major contradictions with the revolution. The founders and their rhetoric, you know, while many of them were wealthy elites who owned fucking slaves. <laughs> of course, that's a surface view. If you look deeper into the ranks of the common people, free white farmers who did know slaves, who held many of the same beliefs about liberty, it's not nearly as contradictory, but still not perfect, obviously. So what we do is we hold up the good, but we grapple with the bad. We acknowledge it, and we learn from both. You know, the revolution is a triumph, but it's a letdown, too. But it is our heritage, and it does exist. 
I want to build on what the founding generation started, not the famous people. Yes, we can use their quotes because they had pretty rhetoric and they were very smart and all that, but so many turned out to be a major letdown like fucking Sam Adams. Instead, it's what the common people started, the ones that declared their independence, not with parchment and powder wigs, but with musket balls and gunpowder, the men that really believed in liberty, the ones that had fought and died for it. That's who I admire in the revolution. So anyway, guys, appreciate you listening as always. You want to catch me on social media, you can find me on Twitter at statistquopod. You can shoot me an email, thestatusquo at gmail.com. Nick's holding it down on Facebook, and please visit our website, thestatusquo.net. Got an article dropping here pretty soon. <laughs> I know I said it again and again for weeks and weeks, but it's been super busy with EMS school. But it's coming, I promise. I appreciate y'all's patience. But every episode of the show is there, uh, along with all our show notes and everything else. Thanks for listening, guys. Peace. Peace.